Operation Red Pill. The only podcast hosted by Truthfully Armed, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories to the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host, Christopher Dean. Yeah, baby. Join us as we go behind enemy lines to reveal the truth about another aspect of this occult matrix, as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing. The New World Order Part 3, Babylonian Money Magic. Is the greatest economy in the world designed to produce economic freedom, or is it part of a sinister master plan designed to ensnare the peoples of the world in one of the most diabolical forms of slavery known to man? We're going to talk about this and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill. Welcome back to another episode of Operation Red Pill, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories to the heart of the conspiracy itself. Christopher Dean, how you, how you doing, doing, man? man? Wow, that's never happened. Never before has that happened. <laughs> that's great. All right. <laughs> yeah. Real weird technical difficulty. A little glitch in the matrix. Here. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, I started hearing <laughs> some sort of weird vibration. <laughs> and then, bam. All right, here we are. Oh, but how am I doing? Is that what you want to know? Um, <laughs> Would you like to go first? Sure, I'll, I'll go first. All right. <laughs> Uh, I was getting ready for, for, uh, church and, uh, it's a little bit warm. So I decided I was going to dress down a little bit. Okay. And then I had this really interesting thing happen. So I go into the closet and I'm looking at my t-shirts that are hung up. Cause I want to, even though I'm dressing down, I still want to look somewhat presentable. Mm -hmm. And I have a, um, a shirt from a brewing company that my older brother works at. Okay. And then I have a, a Jesus shirt. It says, uh, let's taco about Jesus. Wow. And it's got a taco on it. Wow. <laughs> so it's a little bit goofy, but I've really tried to, um, uh, was it cater my wardrobe to represent Jesus? Okay. So I can't remember who came up with the question, but you know, if you were on trial today for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Right. And not that clothes makes you a Christian, but I was like, if I'm going to wear something, I might as well wear something that testifies of Jesus. That's kind of the idea. Well, I'm looking at these shirts and I'm like, well, if I wear the, the brewery shirt to church, is it? That could be problematic. Right. Is it going to misrepresent me? Is it going to present the wrong idea? Right. Right. But then I have my Jesus shirt and I'm like, nobody at church needs to see my Jesus shirt. Like the whole point of the Jesus shirt is to let people that don't know me know that I, there's something about Jesus and me. Like we're close, right? All right. So I just, I really didn't know what to wear. I'm like the Jesus shirt is wasted, but then the brewery shirt might incite a little bit of a theological contention among the church peoples. Interesting. So what'd you land on? I landed on, as you can tell, I'm wearing my, my red, let's talk about Jesus shirt. But all day I've looked out at my shirt and gone, this is a waste. Yeah, it says, let's talk about Jesus, and then it says, let us pray. Do you understand? I've been around you for the last, what, two and a half, three hours? Yeah. I have not read your shirt once. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, and it had, uh, Mark 16, 15. Shamefully, I don't exactly know what that scripture is, even though it's on my shirt. But it's funny. I mean, I like tacos. I like Jesus. It seemed like a good shirt to get. That's crazy. But yeah, all day long, I'm like, this is just a wasted choice of attire. Interesting. I don't know. How's your week been? You know, dude, my week's been pretty good. 
Um, recently got back to work been kind of getting in the flow of all of that. Okay. Um, we had our annual route bid and that was a really big issue for me. Uh, I've, I, uh, have been on a route that I don't particularly like, but it was what was available when okay. I came off a of disability. And so I was really concerned about getting my old route back. Gotcha. And we did our annual bid. I'm pretty low on the totem pole. And I put in, I think, six or seven different route requests. Okay. And we got our results back uh, last Friday. And ironically enough, I got my old route back. Did you? I did. Because we haven't talked about this. We have not. (laughs) The last I heard is that you, you thought you had got one of the routes but had no idea which one. Right. I had to wait until the following day. And so I went in, found out I got my old route back, which I am so thankful to God about. Nice. For everybody out there that's been praying and knew about it, talking to the Lord, hey, thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. Because it, it, it's helping me, you know, emotionally, being out of work. Um, not out of work, but being off from work on disability and everything that happened with me being in the hospital from COVID. That took a huge toll. And one of the emotional tolls was actually seeing my route go. And I really enjoyed my route. Okay. One of the cool things about it is it's got a real long stretch of road that I find around five thirty, six o'clock in the morning. Time I the perfect time to pray and talk to God. All right. You know, there's nobody out on the road, just me humming an eighteen wheeler doing my thing, talking to the <laughs> Lord, getting business taken care of in the early wee hours. All right. Nice. Love it. And it's just it's just a special little area. Every time I drive it, it just naturally happens. That's cool. So being off of that, I didn't want to, I don't want another area. Like that's my God area. Right. I don't know how long I'm going to have to keep this route (laughs) until we God develop a whole another place where we talk. Right. You know, it was cool. So Mm. when when I lost that route, there's an emotional part to me that was really hurt. For sure. And, you know, not directed to anybody, just saddened, not hurt, but saddened. And so it was a really nice gift for God to, to work that out. And the way it worked out was even crazier. It was my first choice on, on my list. Okay. I listed, I think, five or six other options. And I just checked out of curiosity to see about those five or other six. Uh-huh. Wouldn't have gotten them anyway. Really? Yeah. So your first choice was the only one that you would have actually gotten. Yeah. That's cool. Let's take that back. Either that or the route that I'm currently on that I don't really like. Okay. That one I could have gotten as well. So I'm really happy that this is the one that That's I landed cool. on. So, so it's really- even if it would have been... In different order, you would have ended up with, with this one. More more likely. Because God wants to talk to you in the morning. <laughs> I think I'm liking that. <clears throat> yeah. We, we might have something to talk about. That's cool. Let's talk. All right. What you want to talk about today? Our podcast has been out for a while. Well, I mean, a couple weeks, a few weeks, enough for it to circulate, get around. Yeah, I think we've got uh, five episodes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they're out at the, at the time of this recording. So a little over a month. Yeah. <clears throat> Enough for people to hear about this satanic control matrix. Yes. And uh, it's gotten a lot of good feedback, you know, questions, um, people thanking us that it kind of helped expose or point light in certain directions. But one question that we keep getting, or at least that I keep getting, is that how did we come up with it? Mm-hmm. Like how did, um, so if you would like to illuminate to our listeners, you know, how we kind of discovered this satanic control matrix i believe it was a sunday dark rainy sunday we was, we, we was deep in the prayer closet talking to the lord we had on a shawl you know <laughs> there was a ram's horn 
We had to we had to uh, the phyla- sound phylacteries. Right, we had we had to sound the shofar. <laughs> Got the Lord's attention. We said, "Here, God." We had to say in a still small voice, "Here, Lord, here am I. Please speak it to me." Give Why it does me your thy still word. small voice have broken English? Because <laughs> you don't want to be arrogant. You want to come up in the throne with a guy like, "Hey, yo, Jesus, hey, let me out you for a minute, baby. You got any new new news for us? Anything we can talk about? The peoples is hungry, Jesus. Do it for the peoples, baby." Oh, yeah, that's funny. We can't hit him like that. No, man, I can't. <clears throat> really, this this process was really just that—a process. You know, you and I talk a lot about this idea of God talking. Yes. Does God talk? And you, it, it'd be, it's actually interesting. Some Christians don't believe that God really talks anymore. Right. That it's just scripture and that's it. And now the scripture's closed. He's not talking during the day. You can find all your answers in scripture. Right. And to a certain degree, I get that. You know, scripture is the foundation that we move by. Yeah. But yeah. it's not the the whole enchilada in the sense that it's not, I don't, I don't want to say, cause you gotta be careful how you phrase this. Right. Cause what do they say? The devil's in the details. I yeah. really think that the division in the two camps of Christianity is really in the details here. Yeah. So mm. I would say God speaks in scripture, but God doesn't speak only through scripture. However, when he speaks, it does not contradict scripture. Right. So at all, if you think that you're he- hearing from the Lord, it has to be filtered through the word of God, the right. written word. Okay. That makes Is, sense. Uh, okay. Make sure. I think right now we might've lost 10% <laughs> of the listenership. Yeah. Well, uh, since, since we've delved into this, um, cause, cause we've talked about it a lot. I think one of the issues that people have <clears throat> is that um, the scripture does say that when the canon's complete, like the, the gifts of the spirit and, and, and things will stop. So the, I think the point of contention is that if it's not complete, then it must not be sufficient, right? Mm-hmm. And if it's not sufficient, then what are we even doing here? Okay. And I think that's where the issue, it can be, the issue arises because it can be incomplete and still be sufficient to address all of the issues that we have. And I think a great example of that is the Old Testament. The Old Testament, I don't think anyone would argue, was 100% sufficient to deal with the Israelites, to you know, the law and all of that, to deal with them where they were. However, it wasn't complete. So scripture can be technically incomplete because we have the voices in Revelation, you know, that John was told not to write down what they said, and still have scripture be 100% sufficient to address all of our issues in life. Absolutely. So... I know we took a little left turn there. Yeah, sorry. But no, no, that's a, that's a really good point, and I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, the whole idea of, of God talking outside of Scripture can, can be a little problematic, not just for the person conceptually, but it can be kind of problematic from an experiential standpoint. Because one of the things you immediately have to try and discern is who's talking, like how does God talk to me? Mm-hmm. Um, and just for the sake, I don't, I don't want to get off topic because we can get way in into that. <laughs> right. But but it is an important thing, especially when you're dealing with something that's new to you, like a satanic control matrix. And if you haven't been familiarized or uh, acquainted with that concept before and God's revealing it to you, how he reveals that in and of itself may be weird. Right. You know, so for me, I remember I was watching a surfing through Netflix 
I don't know why I seem to get <laughs> the Lord talking to me while I'm on Netflix because you asked in one of our episodes, you know, do you uh, <laughs> do you always go here? Right? Is this where Netflix, is Netflix really what's what's driving all of this stuff we're doing? No. And our links and resources just put Netflix. Netflix, right? <laughs> we're trying to help them recover their two hundred thousand subscribers that they lost. Right. But um, I was watching a movie. I think it was called Try Frontal War. Um. Uh, Okay. Yeah, it was a really, it was a weird title. It sounds weird. Yeah, and I remember looking at it and going, what? And I'm like, an idea that you can have a battle on three different fronts? I was like, that's weird. Because you're almost encircled. Right. You know, or at least you're trapped. I don't want to give the wrong geometric (laughs) uh, idea. But you're definitely trapped because all your fronts are covered. Right. You know, you're in like this triangle battle, which is not good because it's hard enough to fight a battle on two fronts. It's hard to fight a a battle on one front. Yeah. Let alone two. And this is this is three. Okay. I'm like, that's not good. And I started to watch the movie. The movie was crap. (laughs) I didn't even even finish it. Uh, But this idea stuck with me. Okay. And so I I remember when we were doing the the website for Truthfully Armed trying to discern, hey, what is it that we really are talking about? And we had ideas that were on the table, but Mm -hmm. they weren't really well parsed into these organized groups. Okay. And so as as we were going through writing some of the the copy for the site, the ideas started unfolding a little bit more. You started, when we started looking at um, the things that the enemy was doing and how it could be grouped, the Holy Spirit started to actually unfold that idea more and more and more. Now, here's the crazy thing. While he's unfolding it, I'm personally thinking I'm nuts. Okay. You know what I mean? I remember talking <laughs> to you and like, Christopher, does this make any sense? And you're like, yeah, man, this is hot. I was like, no, no, no. That's not what I was expecting. I was really expecting you to be like, what are you on? No, I thought it was sweet. I was like, this, no, this can't be real. Because, <laughs> you know, you're like questioning God when he's telling you stuff. Right. Especially when it's something you haven't heard before. I'm like, no, there's a lot of people smarter than me that I haven't heard deal with this topic. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, are these the three topics? Like, is it really uh, education and then dealing with mind control and then new world order? Because if somebody throw those, threw those out on the table, you wouldn't be like, ah, yes, I see the relationship between those. <laughs> right, because they kind of just seem sense. like isolated things. Right, it seems arbitrary. And I'm like, nah, I'm not buying that. <laughs> Um, but it, it, it got really interesting to see the relationship because I remember talking to you um, and I think I was writing some of the some of the notes for our earlier episodes. Mm-hmm. And at the top, we had which part of this control matrix we were actually dealing with. And right. I think it was like educational at first and then mind control and then new world order. Right. And the Holy Spirit like refined it a bit and it was like individual. And they were like, oh, social. No, societal. You're dealing with community. Okay. Then, well, what's this other one? It's New World Order. Yeah, but that's everything. I was like, oh, absolute. Okay, cool. So we got individual control, and then we got social control, and we got absolute control. And he's like, yeah, okay. You're trying. <laughs> You're getting there. And some people might have a problem with this, because I think most people, when they imagine you talk with God, it's kind of like um, he's dictating things, and it's not a real genuine conversation. And really, he tends to allow for the process to unfold as wonderful and as frustrating as that is. 
Yeah. Because at the very beginning, it could have just been like, here, write this, this, and this. You're good. Right, right. And that's not what, for me, he ended up doing. Mm-hmm. For me, he ended up making me think through it. Okay. And exercise my mind, um, which I didn't really like. <laughs> you know, it's like going through uh, physical therapy. I'm going through mental therapy. Mental therapy? Yeah. <laughs> I like that. And he's like, listen, uh, absolute, that, that's nice, but follow these all up. I mean, at the very least, you have AL at the end of these, individual. You know, then you've got social. How did you jump to absolute? I was like, yeah, that, I can see where one of these doesn't fit. <laughs> was that song from Sesame Street, One of These Things Doesn't Belong? I was actually thinking the SAT. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when they're measuring your, your comprehension, your cognitive ability. Uh, now I'm embarrassed that you went to the SAT, I went to Sesame Street. We can edit that out in post. I think we should leave it. I think it's good for our uh, our audience. No, but uh, I said, okay, global. He's like, there you go. Individual, social, global. And so, again, this whole process, he's been unfolding this piece by piece by piece. And the really cool experience has been, as, we, as we've been doing this research for these various episodes and various topics, mm-hmm. coming across extremely smart, very intelligent very knowledgeable people that start referencing these ideas. Okay. Like completely shocking. Yeah. Cause for me, I'm still questioning. I'm like, I, I don't really think that was God. Yeah. Then, no. Cause you ask me a lot. Yeah. You're like, am I crazy? Am I making this up? Or, or do you really think this is God? And I was like, well, I don't, it walks. And I was like, yeah, but the two hearts can walk in ways you don't expect <laughs> it to walk. Like I'm expecting to get cut. I'm sorry. It's a spades analogy. <laughs> For those who don't play cards, uh, I'm expecting to get corrected and be like, no, no, this is you're off. You're, you're way off center. And it's been mind blowing to really see this come out in real world time, in real world situations. Yeah. Where you're like, yo, no, really, there's individual control in the in the educational sector. I'm like, no. And you start finding out what they did in Prussia and you're like, whoa. Right. You start finding out, you know, like the Kinsey studies, you're like, whoa. <laughs> you start finding out how much occultism is really being practiced, you know, in, in the American school system. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I mean, not that we're making this up, but you're like, this is real? Right. Like, this is really real? And all this stuff we find just plugs right into this framework. Right. That the Holy Spirit gave you. Which is absolutely mind-blowing. Like when we did the the whole, um, the net industries. Yeah. Even how that got explained and reworked. Because <laughs> I remember originally it was like uh, entertainment, technology, and news. And I was like, ETN? I don't, I don't, I don't know. That's nothing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't, isn't that like ear, nose, and throat? No. Yeah, no, no, that, yeah, ENT. ENT so, would be yeah, ear, nose, and ear, throat. Ear, nose, and throat. <laughs> Guy's like, no, that's definitely not where you should be landing. <clears throat> People are going to misunderstand that real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, if you take the, we, we talk about in that episode, the net industries. And when that, when that whole, um, what is that called? It's acronym. Not, thank you. When that whole acronym was being developed, it was, uh, for me, a process of changing. I had to get the letters right. Yeah. And so the Holy Spirit was like, you don't have it right. And so I'm arranging it. It's like this game. One of my friends had me play, uh, where you can find, you have these letters that are spread out in a grid. Uh-huh. And you try to make as many words with the letters you're given as possible. Yeah, I've I absolutely that. hate that game. Really? My mind doesn't work that way. Interesting. I love hate it. it. Oh, then you should play them. But I'm rearranging these letters, and I got to 10. 
It's a rearranged ENT. And I was like, well, 10? 10 works. And he's like, so close. But no. 10, but there's three. Yeah. <laughs> no, but if you reverse it, I was like, net? He was like, ding, 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 ding. Yes, that's it. Right. I was like, well, how do you, what do you net? He was like, like a trap. I was like, oh, I see it. Right, because there's several scriptures about the snare, the yeah. snare, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, he was like, "And if you roll it out internationally, you get." I was like, "The internet?" He was like, "Yeah, <laughs> you did it." There you go. Oh, he's like, "You're connecting dots now." <laughs> I said, "Hey, man, that, that's really cool." And then now we move to the New World Order, and doing that research and seeing the things that are coming about, it, it really has not only stretched my mind, but caused me to appreciate more what God gave us in the structure because we, uh, one of the dudes we were listening to who does um, 13 bloodlines of the Illuminati, I believe his name is uh, Fritz Sprickmeyer. Uh-huh. We're listening to his two hour presentation from on the, on the prophecy club. And I remember I'm driving, driving a big rig going down interstate 80 it's about 4.30 in the morning, pitch black dark, and I'm listening. And this man starts talking about Satan wants to control everything. I swear my rig just went, <laughs> I was like, no, seriously? <laughs> so, oh, yes, he wants to control everything. He doesn't have the attributes that God has. And I was like, I've never heard this guy before. <laughs> I went to call you early morning, like, Christopher, he's stealing our stuff. And this is 1984. <laughs> he stole it back then. <laughs> He stole it back then. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, he goes on, he talks about that. And then he talks about um, the the construct the control structure that Satan tries to set up. And I'm like, yo, this is really what we've been talking about. Right. Like, Holy Spirit, this is real. And God's like, yeah. And so, it, it's funny because uh, that happened to you. But the day, I think it was the day, maybe maybe two days after we recorded the episode where you brought up. Uh, Fritz. Okay. And I remember, I mean, I wasn't making fun of him, but I wondered if maybe his last name was a typo. Okay. Because there's three vowels in a row. And I was like, well, how do you even pronounce that? You know, just making fun. Um, well, two days after that, the first time I heard about him was you bringing him up on the show. And I listened to Sheila Zelinsky. And she's like, oh, and one of my really good friends, Fritz Sprigmeyer. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Right. I've never heard of this guy before now. And all of a sudden he's popping up. Yeah, not. It's funny, man. The way the uh, the way God talks is interesting. I think God talks to people not just through Scripture, like we said before, but also through a language that is unique to them based on how He's created them. Would it be not to go off on this tangent? Would it be more accurate to say when God communicates, if people have an aversion to the talking because they might assume that it's this audible voice from the sky or whatever, when God communicates to people? But, like, but he still he talks. It, he does. But I mean, if if we're using this all encompassing, I mean, we, we can go with communication. I mean, I was, if, I was just throwing if, it if out that there. Helps people, we don't have to. I mean, I, I mean, I'm perfectly fine with talks. Okay, we'll leave it. Uh, okay, if it ain't broke. All right. So my God <laughs> is, is cutting it up, I'm chopping it up with people. <laughs> <laughs> He's cutting people up. What? Nah. Well, chopping it up. <laughs> but yeah, if you have a really deep conversation with God, there's some conviction. You get cut. Yes. Yeah, there's some things you like, ow, that was that one hurt. I mean double edged sword, right? Right. It's sharp like a scalpel. But um where, where was I going? As he as he re- reveals some of the stuff. I forgot where I was going. So Fritz Sprigmeyer, 
satanic control matrix, attributes of God. That was your train of thought. Is that not helping? It <laughs> completely derailed. <laughs> uh, we talked about the, the uh, I think Fritz was talking about the divine characteristics of God. Right. Um, or, or that Satan tries to, to mock those. And that was really cool. But no, I now remember what I was talking about was the language that God tends to communicate with people in. Sorry. And I think that's important for people to understand because how he talks to you personally might be very different from how he talks to me. And it doesn't devalue or, or uh, nullify the authenticity of that communication. Right. I think it's important to find out what's your, your language. How do you two communicate and connect? For okay. me, one of the primary ways is through, through intellectual content. Like he forces me to think about stuff. So I don't get like the heavens opening up above me and be like, Jason, my most sacred Negro, I have something for thee. Take it thou this. I don't get that. That's good. Yeah. No, I'd appreciate that. I, you know, if you open up the heavens, just make sure it's not warm. You yeah. know, and, and right, tell right. what you got to tell me. Um, I don't get that. A lot of times he'll force me to think through things, to analyze and then conclude and then assess the conclusion against a scriptural backdrop. You know, okay. does this make sense? Do you, and I'm like, oh, okay, I, I can walk with it. There are other times where he'll say stuff directly to me, but for the most part, that's kind of how that works out. So when it came to this control matrix, like how we landed on it, mm -hmm. it was a, I don't want to call it slow, but I do want to say it was a measured out process. Okay. A process of refining what he gave you? Yeah, I like that. All right. Definitely that. And now where we've landed, I'm like super excited about. Yeah, it's awesome. <clears throat> Excuse me. But like Fritz was saying, um, Satan has to kind of enact this control matrix because he doesn't have the divine characteristics right. or attributes of Yahweh. And it's interesting because a lot of people confuse this. Um, I think with growing sources like Alyssa Childers and... Um, Frank Turek and stuff, you know, some of these ideas are, are getting whittled away. But there's a, this idea that it's like, um, it's a, a battle between God and Satan, mm -hmm. right? Like there are these two superpowers that are duking it out. Like the United States and Russia. Right. Yeah, or good versus evil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and yin and yang, I think, well, now that I'm talking about it, I think those misunderstandings really come from the pagan teachings right. that are applied to Christianity. Um, but it's, it's not like that at all because God and Satan are not equal. Satan's nowhere a created being, nowhere near. Um, so because Satan is a created being, he lacks the divine attributes of God. So that's how we see him functioning differently. So like God is sovereign, having all authority, and Satan isn't. So he has to um, use domination, mm -hmm. you know, <clears throat> to, to dominate people because he doesn't have all authority. God is all loving. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, what? <laughs> What happened? I'm just, he had to use domination to dominate people. Oh, is that what I said? Yeah. Yeah. We're not redundant here at all. <laughs> <laughs> no. So he had to dominate people. He's not all loving. So he can't compel people out of his charity. He right. has to intimidate them. And then he's not omniscient, which is all knowing. So it forces him in trying to um, gain this control to manipulate people. Right. So um, he has domination, intimidation, and manipulation which just happened to be three major characteristics of witchcraft Correct. Uh, that we see. But he does this, he enacts this witchcraft or this domination, intimidation, and manipulation. Um, and he does it by using what we call 
the ICU, right? Right. Not putting you in the hospital, even though it, it, it can it can end up being that. Right. It can uh, put you in a real serious situation. Right. Uh, but he had to infiltrate, counterfeit, or hijack, and usurp. So when he, when he tries to infiltrate, this is where he tries to squirm his way using stealth a stealthy-like approach into every facet or institution. And this gives him the foothold needed uh, to then move into counterfeit or hijack, uh, where he hijacks divine processes and methodologies, um, as well as our appetites and understandings, and really tries to hijack our will mm-hmm. to, to fulfill what he wants done. Right. When God asks us to make a choice, he tries to hijack those things and enforce his control on it. You know, what's really interesting about that is that even when that's happening, a lot of times a person thinks that they're in control and that they're actually making decisions, not realizing the degree to which they're actually being manipulated. Right. You know, whether it's through emotional manipulation or cognitive, cognitive um, not dissonance, what's the word I'm looking for? Cognitive conditioning. Mm-hmm. that's happened before the, the thought's been placed. You know, all of those things that are playing against the person on levels that they're not even thinking about. Right. All just to bring the idea. And then they're like, well, yeah, I mean, I'll choose. This doesn't sound bad. I'm glad I thought this up. Right. Satan's not even real. And emotional control is a good one too. Yeah. Because we know that, that God gave us emotions and that every good and perp- perfect gift comes from him. Right. But how often do we see people's emotions, myself included, put us in situations that are not good? that if we listen to those, allow Satan to hijack them and use them, we end up in precarious situations. I see you. I see you, right? But all of this, laying this foundation, this is so he can um, usurp uh, God's authority. Because uh, what he really wants to do is replace God's position. Right. Whether it be on the throne of our hearts, the throne of David, or the throne of heaven, and everywhere in between. This is really what he wants, really what he wants to see happen. Man, well said. Thanks. And so we were talking about Fritz and how after God giving us this um, satanic control matrix and refining the process, how um, it's really been a a cool thing to see other people, um, I I don't want to say mimic, but like contribute to our understanding, to add validity to it. Right. And I was reading uh, Mere Christianity uh, the other day by C.S. Lewis. And some of the stuff that he was saying, I was like, see, we're not crazy. It was like the the same thing that you had with Fritz. (laughs) So in, uh, in mere Christianity, I have a couple quotes by C.S. Lewis here. Okay. And he references our desires. He says, In the first place, our warped natures, the devils who tempt us, and all the contemporary propaganda for lust combined to make us feel that the desires we are resisting are so natural, so healthy, and so reasonable that it's almost perverse and abnormal to resist them. Mm. That's a heck of a statement. I was like, interesting. And he even lists, you know, the devils that tempt us, the contemporary propaganda. I was like, yeah, this is stuff that we're talking about. Yeah, that's a heck of a statement. Then he goes on to say, uh, he, I think he's making an argument about marriage. But he says, if you disagree with me, of course you'll say he knows nothing about that. And you may, quas- you may quite possibly be right. But before you say that, make sure that you are judging me by what you really know from your own experience and from watching the lives of your friends and not by the ideas you have derived from novels and films. (laughs) I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Wow. He says, this is not 
so easy to do as people think. Our experience is colored through and through by books and plays in the cinema, and it takes patience and skill to disentangle the things that, w- that we have really learned from life for ourselves. Wow. Yeah. I was Bro. like, this is crazy. This is all the stuff that we're trying to talk right. about. That's satanic mind control right there. Yeah. That's crazy. It was so encouraging to read that. Because I, I love, I know you don't care too much for mere Christianity. Not because you have an issue with it, but you know, we all have different different likes and dislikes. Right. Whatever it is about that book. And I think I like because he explains things like inside out from the way I would. Okay. And I was like, that's so, so we still arrive at the same place, but did it in different ways. And I love that, that journey that he takes me on. Right. Uh, but to further delineate this control matrix, <clears throat> we divide it into three concentric control zones. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, control sector alpha, which is demonically influenced education focused on individual control where the goal is to use our education systems to de- destroy our individuality. We have everyone going to school for the same amount of time, taking the same classes, eating the same food with very little room for individual expression or even understanding. Hmm. The goal is to reduce education from poor curriculum to the measured regurgitation of information is a sign of compliance and assimilation instead of true understanding of subjects. Tries to re-engineer society. When the subjects of the system grow to move into political positions, CEO positions in the workforce, it effectively works to help re-engineer our society. You know, that's a big one because I, I, I remember uh, Chuck, Missler, Chuck Missler actually talking about how when we send students to some of the Ivy League schools like Harvard, Mm-hmm. And we've already conditioned them to think that evolution is actually legitimate and the ramifications that come with that type of a worldview where life is meaningless. You take those people who graduate from Harvard business, they go into Wall Street and they behave ethically as though their worldview dictates, which means the things that I do don't have much consequence because life is meaningless. So, so what? And to add to it, if you, if we practice social Darwinism, you know, only the strongest survive. Right. So if I'm here to take advantage of someone else, if they were smarter than me, they they would either A, get out the way, or B, they'd be trying to enact this on me. Right. But since they're not, I am fully within my rights and reins to do what I need to do. Yep. And then you get the type of economic chaos and catastrophe that we've been experiencing here the last few decades. Right. There's a direct correlation link between that whole point that you were making and reengineering society. Yeah. It reminds me too. Um, I'm trying to get through this book, "Live Not Live Not by Lies" by uh, Rod Dreher. I think is how you pronounce his last yeah. name. Such good content. Mm-hmm. But unlike mere Christianity, I cannot engage this book with the enthusiasm <laughs> that I do. No, that C.S. makes me Lewis. think I'm really gonna like it. <laughs> you might. You yeah, should, I've got it like, at oh, home, but I haven't had a chance to get into the it. The content is so good, but I just find myself like, like I don't know. My brain just wants to focus on everything, but but that anyway. Uh, he makes this statement about um, the education system and, and these, I guess, naive students that are in college. You mm-hmm. had all like the, the baby boomers going, oh, well, just wait until you get into the real world. Wait until you get into the workforce. And he's like, yeah, they did. And this is what's happening. I think the assumption was that when these educated individuals <clears throat> got into society, that it would re-engineer them. Mm. 
You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. you've, you've got a rude awakening coming. That's not at all how it worked. Gotcha. When they went into society, they re-engineered society. And now we're like, where'd all this come from? I got you. So yeah, don't read, read the book. Definitely read the book. Don't just because I'm struggling with it doesn't mean all that right. you shouldn't look into it. Definitely all right. I'll it. add it to my list. <clears throat> but the last section of uh, Alpha is to induct children into systems of occult ideologies and practices. So this means all the while normalizing pagan practices and occult rituals under the guise of multicultural studies in, in other curriculum. So it's, it's a pretty expansive sector. That is, and that's all under individual control, which right. is trying to basically get behavior, behavior and thought modifications in play. Right. So it's taking people at their most vulnerable stage, coming through being a child and imprinting them immediately with what the world wants. Well, it was um, pro progressive education that tries to um, uh, specifically, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? We use it all the time to reduce individuality, right? Is that the term? So it's interesting that this first sector is focused on reducing individuality, which then just hands them off into the next sector, <clears throat> Bravo, which is satanic mind control. Okay. Um, it's focused on social control. So once they get engineered in this first sector, they get handed off into a different type of, um, I mean, control <laughs> matrix, right? <laughs> no, I get what you're saying. I think it's important for people to realize that these are not, they're not necessarily linearly linear stages. Right. There's not like grade progressions where you go from like first, second to third. These are interconnected spheres. Right, because satanic mind control begins while you're in that system to reduce your individuality. Absolutely. In fact, it may begin prior to that. It can yeah. begin while you come home. As soon as you come home from the hospital or on your ride home from the hospital as a newborn, your parents might have the radio on. Or even in, in utero. Yeah. Cause I, cause that's I've, even better. Yeah. You know, if you're playing music or what television stuff that, that's being taken in. Mm -hmm. All of that stuff affects the child Yep, and it, it starts to see things. So yeah, these are not isolated or progressive stages. These are interconnected stages. It's basically three aspects of one giant control matrix that's being enacted at all times. Right. Excuse me. So yeah, the control sector Bravo focused on social control. This is where Satan uses techniques such as spellbinding and mind control in conjunction with the net industries, news, entertainment, and technology, uh, to condition society to, into groupthink or mob mentality. And we see this more and more today <clears throat> in the formation of a mainstream narrative we're not allowed to disagree with. And the incompetency developed in Alpha usually leaves people open and defenseless against the mechanisms we find here in Bravo. That's a good insight right there. Again, it's, it's not, like you said, it's not linear, but they do, they feed back and forth into one another. They do. Which leads us to the last one, Control Sector Charlie, the New World Order, focused on global control. Bet you didn't see that one coming, did you, Jason? No, no, that's new. <laughs> uh, here Satan endeavors to reestablish the old world order, his rogue confederacy that was drowned by the flood and shattered at the Tower of Babel. His hope for humanity is to restore them to their antediluvian condition, which is... Uh, before the flood. Right. I had to rethink that one again. Before the flood, that every thought of every man would be evil all the time. And this would allow him to stand as the totalitarian rule over all. Mm. Now, 
we're not fear mongering here. We're not really trying to scare people. I know you might be nervous over there, Jason. It's you know, I it's get okay. Scared easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, if any of you out there are listening to this, we our efforts are really twofold. We we want to wake people up to the control and deception that we've all been living under that seems to be getting exponentially worse. Uh, we don't want to be naive uh, to the war that we're actually in. Okay. But secondly, we want to arm people with truth. The truth that no matter how close Satan gets to his goal, we have the power to endure the things that we are coming up against. Love to cast out all fear in the midst of it and a sound mind to resist the machinations of evil that endeavor to entrap us. All of this comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ to help us in the here and the now, both of them, here and the now, and the knowledge that ultimately God will put all things right and fulfill his redemptive promise globally. Christopher, I want to circle back uh, for a moment to something we were talking about last week. All right. Which is this idea of the United States being a Christian nation. This is something I see constantly thrown at us. You know, America is definitely a Christian nation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm one to come right back and say, no, it's not. But there have been several times that God's kind of challenged me on that. Okay. And been like, okay, well, if it's not a Christian nation, then how do you explain the fact that America sent more missionaries overseas than any other country? Okay. How do you deal with the fact that we keep noticing that it is getting progressively worse, which would imply it might not have been that bad. You know, we like to say it's, it's less Christian every year, right? <laughs> every day <laughs> we're getting further away. Well, uh-huh. that implies that, that, that we were. Okay. And it's not so much that I think God is saying that we are a Christian nation. I think he's trying to make me sensitive to this other reality. Okay. That, that needs to be accounted for. And then when, I was kind of confused when he, he said it. I'm like, well, how, how do you, what's the difference? Because I, I'm not, I'm not seeing where it is when I'm looking at some other <laughs> issues. Right. And he really hammers home this idea that it is, that there's a difference between settling a land and founding a nation. I, I loved like the first time you brought that up. It was amazing because I've never heard that before. It gave me kind of goosebumps. Right. Because it's it's so I want to say that it's so evidently clear. But we use the words interchangeably that it it obscures that difference. Right. And so we almost treat them like they're the same thing and they're not. They're not. You know, if you had a country that came in here, pray God, this never happens. But, you know, there's like this. uh, uh, What what was that? That movie uh, with the Wolverines and all Red Dawn. Mm hmm. Yeah, if you had like an invasion in the movie Red Dawn, where let's say somebody like North Korea comes over and they take over this country. Right. And they basically set up new constitution, you know, new articles of federation, what have you. And let's say that their religious bend is agnostic or whatever. And as a society, as a culture, most of us are, let's say we're scientific naturalists. We believe in science and science alone. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. (laughs) Okay. Could you then say that this new country, this new United States, is an agnostic country? Yeah, I don't know. It, I mean, you'd almost have to in one, in one sense. But you'd have the same problem. Right. The people are one thing. The collective view and opinions of the people are one thing. But this actual entity that was created, which is really a business entity, once it came into concretion, it's its own thing. With its own motives. Exactly. That's interesting. Its own bend, its own orientation. Right. And that's not necessarily synonymous with the people. Right. 
I think they definitely have a relation. I, I would they agree. They affect one another. There's a relationship, but they are not identical. Right. And I think with, with that in mind, it's definitely important to, to look at the ideologies of a nation. Mm-hmm. You know, because like you said, we shouldn't just assume that they're going to be the same. They could very much be different or they very much could be different. Right. So looking at the things that they say is a great example or a great way to see samples of what, what they actually believe. Especially if we're talking about the leaders of the country. Right. Because they represent that country. We're looking at the official things that that country has, has stated about itself. Yeah. And here's one that, that people might not like, but uh, let's take one of the most renowned presidential speeches given by an American president, the okay. Gettysburg Address. You're going gonna to ruffle some feathers, aren't uh, you? A little bit. I am. Ah, I feel it. But I, I couldn't get away from this because I heard it in a whole different way. So this is, this, is the, um, this is the address where Abraham Lincoln makes the statement that we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And it shall not perish from earth. I, I don't see nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Most people don't. It's for the peoples, baby. Right. And I, I didn't even recognize it either until I was reading the Bible. And, and we know that Abraham Lincoln was... Um, he was not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ignorant. Ignorant of the Bible. He was fully aware because he makes statements about the Bible. So he knows what it says. Okay. And the Bible actually says, Paul tells us that for him, and we're talking about Jesus here. Okay. Or, or God, however you want to look at it. But for him and through him and for him are all things made. I was like, wait a minute. Not for the people, through the people, and for the people? Right. I mean, from the people. Yeah, well, it wasn't that. It wasn't, it wasn't people-oriented. All things. So Abraham Lincoln, knowing full well what the Bible says, it's like he's standing up and addressing the nation and saying, hey, look, I know that God created everything, but this nation right here, mm-mm, it is of the people, by the people, for the people. <sighs> everything save this nation was created by God. That's fascinating. Like that, ah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one stings a little bit. It does. Because you don't tend to look at it juxtaposed against scripture that way. Right. And it's only when you do that that you really see the sinister nature of it. It's crazy. You know, because when you're talking about for the people, I'm like, there's nothing really bad about that. But what it essentially does is it makes people the focal point, mm-hmm. which makes it humanistic in nature. Yep. And at that point, and had you got a nice little label you can put on it. <laughs> At that point, it's definitely in contra as a contravention, contradiction to scripture. Right. And that's problematic. And it's so cleverly done. I mean, there's so many churches and Christians that hold on to that. We are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Especially if you consider what was going on in our in our nation at the time that that was being delivered. Yeah. It would even seem more un- more appropriate. Yeah, I mean, on the surface. Yeah, but once you just peeled it back like that, yeah, that's going to bother me. Good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, dude, when we really start taking a serious look at the words and opinions expressed by by those considered to to be not just founding fathers, but the inner circle of power and influence amongst those that helped establish our country, you know, the American government, we find actually some equally troubling things Beyond what was just what you just presented with Abraham Lincoln. Okay. You know, let me give you an example. Let's take Thomas Paine. Now, Thomas Paine, most people probably haven't heard of him, right? Because he's most often overlooked or marginalized by modern historians. 
But it has been said that without the pen of pain, the sword of Washington would have been wielded in vain. Because according to the Marquise de Lafayette, a free America without Thomas Paine is unthinkable. Wow. I didn't even realize all that. Right. In fact, on his tombstone, it reads, uh, history is to ascribe the American Revolution to Thomas Paine. Wow. He's that important. That's saying something. Right. So there's reason then we got to ask the question since we're serious biblical thinkers here. At least we try to be. Mm Got to know what did Mr. Paine have to say about the Bible and Christianity? Listen to his words. When I see throughout the greater part of this book, the Bible, scarcely anything but a history of the grossest vices and a collection of the most paltry and contemptible tales, I cannot dishonor my creator by calling it by his name. What is it the Bible teaches? Refined cruelty? Murder? What is it the New Testament teaches us? To believe that the Almighty committed debauchery with a woman engaged to be married and the belief of this debauchery is called faith? Is this the fable of Jesus Christ as told in the New Testament? The wild and visionary doctrine raised therein against which I contend. The story taken as it's told is blasphemously obscene. Wow. I don't even know. Yeah, that's crazy. That's nuts. I don't, I'm not even sure what to, which part to take apart. Like first. We don't even have time to take (laughs) all of this apart. This is just to give people, you know, an idea of what these people who are responsible for founding our government really think before yeah. we fly off talking about this is a Christian <laughs> nation. Because there's only one dude. Right. We got a few others. We got a few other people to cover. All you right. Know, th- th- listen, these those words are beyond insidious. We can both agree on that, right? Mm-hmm. This is what occupied the mind of the man that wrote the most famous pamphlet, Common Sense, which is a work that not only proved to be Uh, you know, the most influential writing leading to the American Revolution. But it was also a work that is said to have significantly influenced Thomas Jefferson's writings of the Declaration of Independence. So speaking of Jefferson, I'm quite curious. Let's see what this dude had to say. All right, let me hear it. Well, in a letter to General Alexander Smythe, which was dated January 17th, 1825, Jefferson writes concerning the Book of Revelation, which... Is the only book in the Bible, mind you, that carries a special blessing for the reader who heeds its warning, right? right? Jefferson says, it is between 50 and 60 years since I read it, and I then considered it merely the ravings of a maniac, no more worthy or capable of explanation than the incoherence of our own nightly dreams. Jeez. And then in another letter written to William Short, dated October 31st, 1819, Jefferson goes on to state that the greatest of all the reformers of the depraved religion of his own country was Jesus of Nazareth. Extracting what is really his from the rubbish in which it is buried, easily distinguished by its luster from the dross of his biographers and as separable from that as the diamond from the dunghill. Wow. So Jefferson responds by writing what would come to be known as the Jefferson Bible. Okay. I've heard that properly titled the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, where he attempts to separate what he considered to be the quote, true sayings of Jesus from the things which he believed had been added the dunghill, as he put it. Jeez. So what did he remove since he was on this editorial spur? (laughs) Right. What was taken out? He specifically deleted the virgin birth, the miracles of Christ, the Lord's resurrection and his ascension into heaven. 
Needless to say, the entire book of Revelation was omitted. And because there were among some of the things that Jefferson believed came from inferior minds concerning the Lord Jesus, he wrote in another letter dated April 13th, 1920, among the sayings and discourses imputed to him by his biographers, I find many passages of fine imagination, correct morality, and of the most lovely benevolence, and others, again, of so much ignorance, so much absurdity, so much untruth, charlatanism, and imposture. I separate, therefore, the gold from the dross, and leave the latter to the stupidity of some, and roguery of others of his disciples. Of this band of dupes and impostors, Paul was the first corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. I'm sorry, I misread that. The worst corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. Wow. This is Jefferson. That's nuts. No, no, he's a good, he's a wonderful founding father. We love him. Right. He's got this beautiful memorial in Washington, D.C. Jeez. Yeah. He's a good guy. Man. Well, then you got Benjamin Franklin. And everybody loves old Ben. Right. He can't do anything wrong. No, no. He, he <laughs> discovered electricity out there with the kite. I don't know what, how high you have to be <laughs> to think it's a good idea to go out in the middle of a thunderstorm and fly a kite. Yeah. Being high might be the thing that got it done, though. I'm try starting to think that that's where that term <laughs> high as a kite came from. <laughs> you went all Benjamin Franklin on that one. Right. Completely. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> A uh, few people actually realized that uh, he was without question deeply involved in Freemasonry and other secret societies. In fact, he actually belonged to secret groups in three countries that were involved in revolution and the War of Independence. America, France, and England. He was the master of the Masonic Lodge of Philadelphia. And while in France, he was the master of the Nine Sisters Lodge from which the French Revolution emerged. In England, he joined this secret fraternity known as the Hellfire Club. All right. You heard of that? I have. Yeah, the Hellfire Club was this like uh, exclusive society that housed the Superior Order, which is a group of 12 members who allegedly took part in basic forms of satanic worship. In addition to other occult practices like orgies and parties where prostitutes were said to be just the normal occurrence. Right. Doesn't sound like a bad Friday. Sure. Right. <laughs> then there's this whole issue of charred human and animal remains that were found buried deep under Benjamin Franklin's home in London. Yep. And it's known that Satanists perform ritualistic killings similar to what they found of both animals and humans as part of their occult practices. Yeah. So this wonderful man, Mr. Franklin, <laughs> here's what he had to say concerning Jesus Christ. All right. As Jesus of Nazareth, I think, the system of morals and his religion as he left them to us, the best the world has ever saw or is even likely to see. But I apprehend it has received various corrupt changes and I have some doubts as to his divinity. Hmm. Now, John Adams, another great name for one of the founding fathers, yeah. right? Of, of this supposed Christian nation. Yep. Even John Adams, who some thought to be a Unitarian, shared views on Christianity that were similar to pain, Jefferson and Franklin. He went on to say that I almost shudder at the thought of alluding to the most fatal example of the abuses of grief, which the history of mankind has preserved the cross. Consider what calamities that engine of grief has produced. Jeez. I'm gonna tell you what's even more crazy. When Adams became the second president of the United States, uh -huh. 
He helped to secure a particularly interesting treaty between the United States and Tripoli in 1796. Okay. Now, this all sounds like you're getting these dates and, and all of this. It sounds boring. Right. No, this is actually really dope. Hang in there with me for a second. Okay. This treaty was <clears throat> sent to the U.S. Senate for ratification in May of, of uh, 1797. And the entire treaty was read aloud on the Senate floor. Amongst the many things that it stated, it's the, it's the beginning of the words of Article 11 that are most concerning to us considering this question of whether or not America is a Christian nation or not, right? Okay. Article 11 states, quote, the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. Well, that clears it up right That's there. That's got to nail it. Yeah. Now, listen to what President Adams said after he read the treaty. Now, be it known. I'm sorry, that's probably not his voice. <laughs> probably not. Yeah, I need a presidential voice. I don't think I have one. <laughs> be it thou known. <laughs> now, be it known that I, John Adams, pre president of the United States of America, having seen and considered the said treaty, do by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, accept ratify and confirm the same and every clause and article thereof every clause and article thereof that includes article 11 Jeez. now after hearing the reading of the treaty the u.s senate unanimously approved the ratification recommendation effectively john adams and the senate made clear that the assurances in article 11 were intended to show that the, the, the treaty was between two sovereign states, not between two religious powers. Interesting. So according to Wikipedia, Frank Lambert, who's a professor of history at Purdue University, says that by their actions, the founding fathers ensured that in no official sense would America be a Christian republic. Ten years after the Constitutional Convention ended its work, the country assured the world that the United States was a secular state and that its negotiations would not adhere to the dictates of the Christian faith. Not good. No. But, <laughs> hey, 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 wait. There's more. All right? George Washington. Because <laughs> everybody's been waiting for this one. Right. All right, good old George. Listen, <clears throat> so much could be said about Washington. All right? I mean, we've covered some of this before. Mm -hmm. All right? From his Masonic roots, the fact that those closest to him didn't consider him to be a Christian. You were talking about earlier, if there's enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian, right. for him there was not, which is extremely troubling. The fact that uh, he he didn't attend communion. Right. Whenever it was offered at his church and when called out on it, stopped going to the church. Well, I love that at that time the church had the... The audacity the, to say, "Hey, you stones, the stones, yep." Yeah. To say, "Hey, president, uh, you need to be taking communion." Right. That that's mm. dope. Then you got the fact that he was a Mason. He had a Masonic Bible, and that Bible he was sworn on. Him and several other presidents were sworn in on, including presidents Warren Harding, uh, Dwight Eisenhower in his first inaugural swearing in, Jimmy Carter, George H. W. Bush, and his son George W. Bush on his first inaugural. On the Masonic Bible? On the George Washington Masonic, Masonic Bible. Jeez. Washington has his own Masonic Bible. And anybody who knows anything about Masonry, Masonry at its top, at its core, for those who are the initiated and the adept, tells you it is not a Christian religion. Right. You have to denounce Christ. You have to as you go through the certain de the degrees of progression. Mm -hmm. You have to. 
you have you cannot use that name anywhere in their temple once you pass a certain threshold of commitment. Right. Not to mention some of the more sinister things that you have to do, whether it's drinking blood out of a skull, whether it's a real human skull or not. Still, that's bad. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all sorts of things that they do as they go through these different progressions. So the fact that he would be considered, quote unquote, a Christian and have his own Masonic Bible is all bad. Right. But that's not the worst. That's not the worst of it? No, no, no. That's child's play. All right. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the craziest thing uh, about Washington. The craziest thing I found out okay. was this thing called the apotheosis of George Washington. Okay. And it's this wonderful word, apotheosis. I love it. Makes you sound smart. It does. And you I know need everything that. about everything. I do. <laughs> I know about pothies and osises. <laughs> but no, this, this thing is uh, it's a fresco painted by the Greek-Italian artist, uh, what's his name? Constantino Bermudi. In 1865. Yeah, that's it. I believe it. Yeah, that's his name. <laughs> well, I'm just, I mean, I don't know, but yeah, you got it. That's there it. we go. Yeah, that's his name. And <clears throat> you can see it through the oculus of the dome in the rotundra of the United States Capitol building. Now, Bermuda painted it over the course of about 11 months uh, near the end of the Civil War. He was paid $40,000 to do this fresco, which in today's money is $708,000, somewhere around there. Keep that in mind, the difference. Yeah. $40,000 his time, $700,000 our time. Right. Remember that. That's going to be important <laughs> later on. <clears throat> but the painting depicts Washington actually sitting amongst the heavens in this exalted manner or, or in uh, literary terms, ascending and becoming a God. That's what apotheosis means. Right. So it's basically a painting of him ascending into Godhood. Now he's surrounded by figures from classical mythology, which you wouldn't expect for a Christian nation. Right. He should have some biblical characters around him, and he should not be ascending into godhood. True. That, that's the, <laughs> the first problem. Right. But you the, don't see any Christian characters. Right. You don't see Christ. You don't see God. You don't see the Father. You don't see the Holy Spirit. Maybe they just misunderstood that commandment that you should have no other gods before me. You know what? You should have all other gods before. That's what I was going to say, because <laughs> that's exactly what they do. Right. In fact, uh, <laughs> your comment right there makes me want to jump ahead to something, but I'll hold it. Okay. So you've got these goddesses that are around Washington, and Washington's actually sitting in a pose that is that is a familiar, familiar, familiar depiction or pose of the Baphomet, which is that Greek goat god. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, if you look at the way his hand is extended and one is up, it's it's very much so similar to the way the Baphomet is sitting on his throne. I don't think that's accidental. Right. But he's surrounded by goddesses now. The uh, On his left is, is the goddess Victoria. She's wearing green. And then to his right is the goddess of liberty, which would be Columbia. Right. Which would be the goddess of the very temple that this thing, the very building in which, that houses this painting. Right. And okay. Columbia is considered the queen of heaven. Yep. So it's a major, major thing. Here he is flanked by these two goddesses. You know, across the circle wash, uh, of the uh, from Washington is the banner E Pluribus Unum, meaning out of many one. And we'll deal with this phrase in more depth later in the show. But surrounding Washington and the two goddesses are 13 maidens and six scenes lining the perimeter. Each of these reliefs representing a national concept allegorically <clears throat> from directing uh, directly below Washington and the center and moving clockwise. You have war, which has Lady Freedom, also known as Columbia. She's directly below Washington and she's fighting supposedly for freedom and liberty. 
you have science, and in that one, you have Minerva, the Roman goddess of crafts and wisdom. Then for the marine or sea, you have Neptune, the Roman sea god with the trident and crown. For commerce, the god Mercury, which is the Roman god of commerce, and his wing, uh, he had the wing sandals and the caduces. Okay. Then for mechanics, you have the Roman god Vulcan, which is the god of fire and and forge. And then for agriculture, you have Ceres, which is the Roman god of agriculture, shown wearing the, the wreath of wheat and cornucopia, which is a symbol of plenty. Huh. So intentionally, all of these pagan gods were painted into this relief that's still there in the rotundra today. That's crazy. No, this is a Christian nation. Christian nation. Absolutely. Has to be. Not crazy. You can't see most of these perimeter scenes from the floor of the rotundra. Okay. Uh, because of just the physical orientation, you might be able to catch a glimpse of some of them because they're way up there. Uh, but the painting <clears throat> itself is surrounded by 72 stars, otherwise known as binding pentagrams, that pi- quite possibly represent the 72 cosmocraters or rulers of the Gentile world under Satan's command. Uh... And they command, they're said to command spirits of lesser rank until every level of earthly government can be touched by their their command. Interesting. Remember, all this comes from a principal building that was, according to Thomas Jefferson and the Library of Congress, dedicated to all pagan gods. Man. Dude, none of this, none of it <laughs> speaks to Christianity. No, not at all. The, in fact, in fact, the opposite. The absolute opposite, man. This is this is crazy. So now we get to this thing. All right. Still exploring this idea of is America a Christian nation? Okay. As if it's unsettled. Yeah, no, because I haven't really made my case yet. <laughs> right. All right. I'm, I'm still working on it. <clears throat> so people like to ask me from time to time, uh, what kind of got you thinking about the stuff the way that you do? Okay. You, know, you seem to think a little bit differently than most people. When I ask you questions, you definitely give me answers that I'm not expecting. And I like to just sum it up and be like, because I'm Spears, baby. <laughs> Brush a little dirt off my shoulder. I love that they asked you so diplomatically, too. Like, it's not like, <laughs> you're crazy. <laughs> I, I may be downplaying the way that they, they come at me. Because I get the latter one. <laughs> what, where they call you crazy? Yeah. That's funny. Um, there's a couple books that have influenced me. Okay. One of those was Henry Morris's The Long War Against God. Yes. We've talked about that before. Um, love the fact that he details that evolutionary thinking has its roots in the spiritual world. It right. goes back into the ancient times. It's not this new scientifically naturalistic view. Right. That it really is a spiritual view. This idea that Satan thinks that he is a evolutionary, I don't want to call it a byproduct, but not even a mutation, but a, a he comes, he's equal to God in his sense, in, in his mind. Okay. That he's just an evolutionary change. Right. That God is not superior. We're just, we branched off evolutionary. Right. On the evolutionary, uh, what do they call that, tree. And if you get the team, the right team together, yeah, you we can, can overthrow him. You can. But it's interesting. Scripture didn't say that he wanted to, that Lucifer wanted to be over God. He just wanted to be like. Like God. You're true, true. Just right next to him. Right. So, you know, you can have God or you can have me. You can make your choice. But he was just fighting for equality. That's it. <laughs> I like that. You know, and and that that's a problem. <laughs> but that that book 
really helped to change my thinking. But another book that was equally trans transformative for me was the book by Tom Horn called Apollyon Rising 2012. Okay. I remember you reading that. You kept telling me like every couple of chapters, you were like, this is an amazing book. Dude, it peeled my wig <laughs> back. I'm telling you, it, it changed my entire outlook on how I assess the world. Okay. And that's a, that's a big statement. Right. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that he doesn't pontificate or speculate. Mm-hmm. He gives you the real facts of this stuff and connects them to scripture, but he expects you to think. Okay. He expects you to, to be smart enough to be like, look, I'm telling you, this is what these people believe. This is what they did. Determine for yourself the conclusion. Okay. And nice. you're like, yeah, I can't, you can't really argue with that. Right. You know, in fact, he's the one where most of that, that information on the founding fathers. Okay. That's just like in the introduction of the book. Jeez. That's not really the full point of that book. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, he stacks ammo and delivers it to you rapid fire and expects you to keep up. And I'm like, bring it on. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's a lot to wrestle with. It is. But the way he explains it is, is so beautiful. I mean, I would encourage anybody get the book, okay. get Apollyon Rising 2012. Cause it goes in, into a lot more than just that. There's a lot that he helps to explain and decipher that I think is really interesting and really important. But he raises this idea uh, in the book about seals. And at first, I'm a little confused. I'm like, are we talking about the, the marine animal? Or are we talking about the spec, spec op naval military unit? I mean, I'm cool with both. Just what are we going to talk about? Because <laughs> I, I, I first thought um, the spec op guys. That was my first. You say seals, and that's where I go. That's right there. I'm good. <laughs> so, I mean, we're going to talk about that. Let, let's do that. Well, that's not where he goes. He's actually dealing with this idea of a governmental seal, you know, the official emblem of a geopolitical entity. Okay. And I'm like, I didn't know about that. I didn't know we had that. It was a brand new idea to me. Like, right. I don't know if you've ever read a book that is so sweet and introduces so much new information to you. You have to carry around a second book that you can interpret <laughs> the words and things you don't know. Yes. In fact, uh, you had me read Henry Morris's The Long War Against God. <laughs> and I had that book on my lap. I had like a dictionary on one hand, right. an encyclopedia on the other. I was like, what has he got me into? That's what a Polygon Rising was for me. I'm like, I, I don't know these terms. <laughs> I have to buy a new highlighter, for, you know, just for these terms. Yeah. It was crazy. So he introduced this concept of seals. And the very first thing that I found remarkable was that not only does our country have a seal, but there's a front and a back and you don't call it front and back in that world. What do you call it? The obverse and the reverse. Interesting. I was like an obverse. I don't know. Uh, let me get to the second book. <laughs> Go look that word up. Right. Yeah. So our country has a seal. And what's ironic is that most of us have probably seen it and didn't know what we were looking at. Like anytime you see the presidential seal, the president of the United States, you're typically seeing the uh, seal of the United States. Okay. The presidential office also carries the same seal. Gotcha. So that's the one we're used to. We see it stamped on U.S. passports. You know, you've got the eagle and the coat, the shield of arms, uh-huh. all of that. That's the front side. And then you've got the back side, which has the uh, pyramid, the unfinished eye, uh, and some other icons on there. Okay. Which are all 
which are have their own occult significance. So on the obverse side, the front side of the seal, we've got the eagle, which most people know, right? You know the bald eagle. And the story behind that is that according to the original council, not the original council, but some of the people that were designing this, because it started out, I think it went through like three different councils. And the people who were on the first council, oddly enough, were Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams. Interesting. Yeah, they were on the first council, but somewhere around the second or third, because I don't think the first council was ever able to come into full agreement on what they wanted. Okay. So around the second or third council, one of the original artists, William Barton, drew some different sketches and some of that stuff developed into what we have today. Okay. So you have the eagle. The eagle's head is turned to the right, which is interesting because it does change based on the conditions of the state of the government. Really? When the government's at war. The eagle will turn his head to the left to the talons carrying the arrows. And we were at times of peace. We turned to the right Interesting. for the talon carrying the olive branches. Okay. Those olive branches have 13 leaves on them. Supposed to be indicative of the 13 colonies. Okay. And as well as the 13 arrows in its left claw or talon. Okay. Supposed to also be indicative of the 13 colonies. Above the head of the eagle is a relief that has 13 stars. Also said to be indicative of the 13 colonies. Right. And then you have E Pluribus Unum, which is the banner that's being held uh, in the eagle's mouth out of the many one. All of this is on the front side. All right. Then you move to the back side or the reverse side. And you have a different picture that is on there. And it's normally the one that, that we're familiar with, with this unfinished pyramid. The pyramid has got 13 levels to it. All that sit underneath the all-seeing eye. Okay. 72 stones help make up that, that pyramid. You also have above the all-seeing eye the term annuit coeptus, uh, which means basically favors our undertaking. Okay. And then you have novus order seclorum, which means new order of the ages or new world order. Gotcha. This all seems a little cryptic and a little weird, but this is what's on our national seal. Okay. And most of this, again, you don't see. You don't see the reverse side of the of the great seal. Right, we just get the eagle, usually. Which is on the obverse side or the front side. Gotcha. That's what gets stamped with the, the State Department documents. That's what shows up on your passport. Okay. It's that same thing. That's what's on the side of Air Force One. That's what's on the presidential um, podium. Anytime he talks and you see the President of the United States. Right. You see all of that. Right. You usually see people's front side and not their back side. I'm going to stay silent <laughs> on that one. I am not going to incriminate myself today. <laughs> now, here's what I find interesting. And this is something I think people have to remember. Um, we were talking about symbols. And I think we mentioned this last week. Okay. Symbols are to the eyes what words are to the ears. Right? All right. They have different meanings. There's typically two types of meanings for symbols. When you start to to study symbology and when you become familiar with symbolism, like symbology is the study of symbols, symbolism is the use of symbols. Okay. When you become familiar with that, you start to see that there generally are two different types of meanings associated with a symbol. Right. One of those is what we would call an exoteric or outer, outer meaning. All right, that's normally for the public, for the masses, for people that are not initiated to understand the true meaning. 
The true meaning is what we would call the esoteric meaning, the, okay. the hidden meaning. It's the esoteric meaning that you want to start paying close attention to. Because Manly P. Hall, which is one of the most venerated um, Masonic philosophers and historians, stated that it was the influence of the church and wiping out, beginning to really press out and stamp out occultism that forced occultists to have to go underground and begin to cloak the meaning of their symbols in Christian garb so as not to be found out. Interesting. Right? When did he say that happened, do you know? I don't have the quote right in front of me. Okay. But um, I, I don't know which part in history where that began. But this is one of the real reasons why these meanings are not apparent. Okay. And why they feel they have to hide a lot of this stuff. Right, because it, it just reminded me of um, when uh, Theodosius made Christianity the state religion of Rome, and it caused this type of mixture of Christianity and paganism where paganism kind of slid under and was able to be practiced in, I guess, in the shadows. But right. it's kind of just like what he's talking about. Now I got you. In fact, he's got a quote where he said, not only were many of the founders of the United States government Masons, but they received aid from a secret and august body existing in Europe, which helped them to establish this country for a peculiar and particular purpose known only to the initiated few. The great seal is the signature of this exalted body. Unseen and for the most part unknown, an unfinished pyramid upon its reverse side is a tessel board setting forth symbolically the tax to the accomplishment of which the United States government was dedicated from the day of its inception. Wow. That's a lot. It is a lot. Still trying to answer this question. <laughs> is this a Christian nation? And it... it, it. I might not be remembering this correctly, but wasn't the uh, Illuminati as we understand it today officially established in 1776? It was. And I don't think that's accidental. Uh, no, I don't think so either. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a minute. Here's a question that I want to raise. I just went through several groups of 13, you know, 13 stripes, the 13 uh, arrows, the 13 olive branches, the 13 stars above the eagle's head. Why so much emphasis on 13? Is it really just to call back the viewers remembrance of the colonies. I mean, that's what we're told. That is what we're told, but I'm beginning to wonder, I mean, you got 13 leaves, 13 berries, 13 arrows, 13 stripes, 13 stars, 13 letters in E pluribus unum, 13 characters, including the comma and out of many one, which is the translation of E pluribus unum, 13 letters in annuit coeptus, 13 rows or steps in the unfinished pyramid. Like, that's a lot of 13s. That's a lot. That doesn't seem like we're just talking about the 13 colonies. Right. And Because most of those, sorry, right. most of those people aren't even going to pick up on. Right. You know, 13 is a, a really significant number. You know, 3 and 10 is morbid fear or morbid fear of 3 plus 10, which is a tristadecophobia. That's right. I carry that word around in my head just for <laughs> times like this. Okay. I'm glad you finally had an opportunity. I did. Now I'll forget it. <laughs> so here's some interesting real world issues or uses of 13. Okay. Most Wiccan covens are made up of 13 members. At the Last Supper, there were 13 men, 12 disciples plus Christ. Judas Iscariot, which was Christ's betrayer, has been described as the 13th person to join the table just a short time before he committed the most hyenas crime in all of world history. 
you know, Friday the 13th in October of the year 1307, King Philip the Fourth of France had the Knights Templar arrested. Yep. Apollo 13, which was launched at 1313 Central Standard Time, and the oxygen tanks exploded on April 13th, 1970. You know, early on in the development of our modern calendar is a year with 13 full moons, which happens for approximately 37 years out of a century, would throw off the balance of the scheduled church festivals, their feast, and the events. Many television shows and Hollywood films have plots surrounding the number 13 in relation to the occult, you know, or paranormal activity or supernatural phenomenon like 13 Ghosts, 13th Floor, Friday the 13th, Warehouse 13. Interesting. You know, a surprising number, this is a crazy thing, a surprising number of hotels and businesses actually superstitiously omit the number 13 from their flooring flooring plan design and from the elevators. Huh. Like on the elevator buttons, it'll jump from 12 to 14. All of this to skip over 13 as though they know that there's a certain ominousity, if that's even a word. <laughs> it is now. Right, to the number 13. Yet 13 is stamped. On our national seal. That's interesting. All over. Right. All those examples I just went through earlier. Makes me think that it's not just for the colonies. Right. Now, here's here, here's the real crazy thing. And there's an occult prophecy that many of us are forced to carry around. Many of us, not even with our knowledge or our consent. In an effort to convey to the unseen realm the intentions for the formation of the United States government and its role in the coming ages. Okay. Now, what in the world am I talking about? I'm talking about the encoded message on the back of the U.S. $1 bill. Okay. Now, the Great Seal of the United States is included and broken up on the back of the $1 bill in a way that is apparently significant to the initiated Masons or those who understand Masonic symbolism as it should be given the fact that it was actually two high-level Masons that were responsible for the design of the $1 bill, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Vice President Henry Wallace, both of which were 32nd-degree Freemasons. Interesting. This is really important because when you look at the obverse side, the front side of our seal, and you count the feathers on the wings of that eagle— I'm putting eagle in quotation marks because when you look at some of the earlier drawings, it was not a bald eagle. It was actually said to be a phoenix. Really? Yeah. And the phoenix has significant occult meaning. Right. It's supposed to be indicative of rebirth and resurrection. It's the okay. resurrection bird. Okay. And it has Egyptian significance because it's basically a bird that represents Horus, Osiris, Isis, that whole death, rebirth uh, cycle. Okay. Which is also... What happens in Washington with the orientation of the buildings, the, I'm just told I can't say, uh, <laughs> by our obscenities committee, I was told I need to say sexually explicit architectural device, <laughs> which I'm talking about the Washington Monument, which is a phallic symbol. Right. Uh, it's a penal symbol. That in conjunction with the Capitol building. Right. And the sun that hits the, the top of the obelisk, the Washington Monument, is said to actually charge it with the powers of Ra. And it's supposed to take those energies into the base of the phallic symbol. <laughs> okay. 
And from an astronomical perspective, it's supposed to release the energy of Osiris, who's, who's dead, up through it and into the pregnant belly of the capital dome, which represents the belly of Isis. Not weird at all. Not at all. But you'd have to have a significant understanding of Egyptian mythology and, and paganism, actually, for any of this to make sense, especially for you to set it up in your principal city. In a country that's Christian. Right. Yeah. Weird. Huh. Real weird. So getting back to the, to, to the eagle, if you look at the eagle's wings, and this took me forever, forever <laughs> to research and verify. Okay. Okay. And I mean, I went through a lot of work to do this because it's not apparent and, and it's kind of covered up a little bit. There are 32 feathers on the left wing. All right. And 33 feathers on the right. Interesting. Both of those said to be significant for the higher levels of the Masonic order. The highest level being a 33, a 33 degree Freemason, and the second highest being a 32nd degree. Okay. If you look, and I went through several of these, and I couldn't figure out why it kept showing up 33 on both wings. Okay. I kept looking at what I found out was the 1885 die cast. And it's in the 1903 die that was cast that this correction is made. Okay. In the 1885 one, both wings have 33 feathers. But then they changed it in 1905? 1903. 1903. My bad. And that's the one that's been used ever since. Huh. So you look on the, if you're able to, to get a high resolution copy of the back of the U.S. dollar bill and zoom in, count them all up. There's 32 on the left and 33 on the right. In fact, we did the work. <laughs> we went through and we actually looked at the back of the $1 bill. And first off, I love the design of the $1 bill. I think from an artistic perspective, it's really cool. Okay. But once I started finding out some of this meaning, I'm less impressed with it. And there is, there is some interesting meaning on the back of the $1 bill because what you'll find is that the Great Seal is actually reversed. We read left to right, top to bottom, right? Uh-huh. Okay, so if we're, if we're trying to pictographically communicate a message for, from an image that has two sides to it, you would put the front side on the left, and you put the back side on the right. Yeah. Because we read from left to right. So we want to read the front side first and the back side second. Right. That is not the way it's arranged on the back of the U.S. $1 bill. It's arranged in reverse. The back is the first thing that you read. And the front is the second thing that you read. Okay. Now that is important because it changes the message. It actually is what spells out this prophecy. So when we look over at the, and you guys can, people can get on our website because we're going to post a picture of this $1 bill. Right. And show you where we've decoded some of these messages. But if you zoom in on the left side, you'll actually see the unfinished pyramid. You'll see the 13 steps, which actually indicate the 13 Illuminati bloodlines. The Illuminati was founded in 1776. You see the 1776 in Roman numerals is included on the 13th or the base of that pyramid. Okay. Which is important to understand. The 72 <clears throat> stones that are in there, we talked about are actually for the 72 Cosmo craters. That's also important. Uh, it's, it's important to note for people who contend with this idea that the eye of Providence, the all seeing eye, uh-huh. is the, most people normally jump to this is Luciferian or this is pagan. This is some occult symbol. 
Right. It actually didn't originate that way. For whatever reason, it used to be a Christian symbol. Really? It was supposed to indicate the three sides of the Trinity and the quote, 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 unquote, eye of God. Although I've never seen anything close to this in scripture. <laughs> right. That's what it was originally uh, derived to be. Okay. But like we were talking about in the beginning of this episode, when you have the ICU infiltrate, counterfeit, usurp. Uh-huh. One of the things that the enemy does is take over symbols and counterfeit them, counterfeit the meaning. Okay. So nowadays, this is actually associated with the Illuminati and with the paganism, with the occult. Gotcha. So we would still be right to say this is an occult symbol, but its roots didn't start out that way. And we'd also have to be sensitive to that because, okay. you know, certain detractors try to use that as a way of discrediting this idea. Okay. Trying to, trying to make people feel like they don't know what they're talking about. Right. So right. understand that history is significant. But <clears throat> the fact that these are arranged in such a ominous way. Uh huh is really alarming. So let's take these phrases and see if they say anything. You know, annuit coeptus. He approves our undertakings. Got to know who the who the he is. Right. That's important. Uh, Novus order seclorum. New world order. What's that about? We got we got to find find that out. Right. It's interesting that those phrases are actually lifted from this prophecy, this this pagan golden age prophecy, which comes from the the Kume Sibyl which is basically a Pythian priestess. Okay. Now we don't really Christianity. We're like, okay, what, what does that mean? <laughs> Actually, there's some significance to it that we might find interesting. Remember when Paul's going through and there's this lady that's behind him talking about these are the, these are servants of the most high God. Uh-huh. And he gets irritated. And- he does. He gets ticked off with her. Right. She was a Pythian priestess. Oh, interesting. There is, there's a nice little connection there. Huh? So, let's see what this prophecy states. The last age by Kume Sibyl sung has come and gone, and the majestic role of circling centuries begin anew. Justice returns, return old Saturn's reign, with a new breed of men sent down from heaven. Only do thou at the boy's birth in whom the iron shall cease, the golden race arise. Befriend him, chaste Lucina, tis thine own Apollo reigns. He shall receive the life of gods and see heroes with gods commingling and himself be seen of them and with his father's worth reign over air, over the world. Assume thy greatness for the time draws nigh, dear child of God's great prophecy of Jove. Jove is Jupiter or Zeus. See how it totters the world's orbed might, earth and wide ocean and the vault profound, all sea and rapture of the coming time. All right. This is the prophecy from which those two phrases are lifted. Okay. And there's a lot in this prophecy here. What this prophecy, I'm going to shorten this for the sake of time, but what this prophecy basically is talking about, there's a couple key phrases that you want to hear. Justice returning, old Saturn's reign. Now, Saturn is enigmatic in ancient times of Satan. Okay. And so with the new breed of men sent down from the heavens, that should be concerning, given some of the stuff we <laughs> talked about with the Nephilim and things like that. Right. Only do thou at the boy's birth in whom the iron shall cease, the golden race arise. Do remember in Daniel when he's given the vision of that that uh, statue that has the five metallic kingdoms. Uh-huh. At the base of it, it talks about the iron and clay that are mixed right. but shall not cleave. Uh-huh. I think that has some significance here with the iron shall cease. 
Interesting. Especially with talking about coming down from heaven and the new the new race shall arise. That's crazy. Right? Never even heard this before, have you? Uh-uh. Yeah, this this is nuts when you get into it because what you start to find out is that the the birth that they're talking about mm-hmm. is Apollo. Okay. Apollo is Zeus's son. Zeus and Saturn, or yeah, Zeus, Jupiter, Saturn, they're all the same. Okay. So Satan's son? Exactly. That can't be good. No. <laughs> That's where that phrase, so when we're talking about annual coeptus, he approves our undertaking. He who? Zeus, Jupiter. Wow. Approves our <clears throat> undertaking. And what's this undertaking for? To set a new world order. Novus order seclorum. That's crazy. It's what you see in the Bible when you see the term Apollyon or uh-huh. Apollo. The I want to say it's the Greek version of that is Apollyon. Okay. Apollyon is the is the word that was used for like son of perdition. Okay. The one who sits over the abyss. Mm-hmm. The one that comes out of the abyss when it's open. Apollyon. Uh-huh. That's the same one we're talking about. Interesting. So the so the prophecy is to fulfill the coming of the Antichrist? Exactly. Good night. On which the one dollar bill. Yeah, which would explain then why there are so many thirteens. Right. With thirteens occult significance. That makes way more sense than just the exoteric meaning that we're given of the colonies. Right. I just want to keep reminding you guys of these thirteen colonies. <laughs> In fact, I don't think it was accidental that the United States government was founded. Once there were 13 colonies. Right. Could have done it at 12. Could have done it at 14. Yeah. 13's good. 13's the right number. Yeah. Interesting. All of this together makes me think, no, there's no way in the world that this this nation is a Christian nation. Right. Well, And even the founding of the Illuminati and the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. The same year. Absolutely. You put all this together... I think we've got a really strong case for not only is this country not a Christian nation, but it is being used to do satanic things. And this is important since we're talking about Babylonian money magic. Right. I don't know why I thought we'd ever get to it. We had to talk <laughs> about money for a minute. Right. And just use our own as an example. Yeah. It's a way that a spell is being cast constantly. And we're carrying around in our pockets. That's nuts. Get this. The, the United States Treasury has issued brand new bills. For almost every denomination, 5, 10, 20, 50s, 100s, all have been redesigned to be modern and meet modern security standards. Okay. There is only one denomination that has not been redesigned from its original inception. You know which one that is? The $1 bill. I wonder why. Huh. Because none of the other ones have this type of prophecy or anything. They don't. And the $1 bill makes up almost half of the bills in circulation. Interesting. And they want the lay to have the prophecy. Absolutely. Wow. That's crazy. Is that nuts? It is. So it all makes me think of this inscription inside the Lubeck Cathedral in Germany. Because, you know, if the United States was actually a Christian nation, I think that it would be more evident. Mm-hmm. For sure. You would but, think. But I don't think that it that it is. Okay. And this inscription actually makes me think about America. It goes like this. You call me master and obey me not. Ye call me light and see me not. You call me way and walk me not. You call me life and desire me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. 
You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me mighty and honor me not. Ye call me just and fair me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. That's heavy. That is. Jeez. I mean, and how often has that been a part of America's functioning? Is not doing, not following, not honoring. On a governmental level? Right. What scripture says? Oh my gosh, yeah. That's crazy. But going back to the the dollar, it's funny because Chuck Missler often makes the joke and when he covers it that uh, he asked the audience the question, hey, is it, are any of you uh, familiar or practice um, uh, trafficking occult paraphernalia? <laughs> I'm sure everybody's like, no. Right, and he's yeah. like, well, take out your wallets. Let me show you what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's crazy. That's a good little trick. <clears throat> but one thing that bothers me uh, that's on the, the dollar that you didn't mention is that it says Federal Reserve note <laughs> on the front. Who'd have thought with everything I went through? <laughs> that there, there was something, something you didn't, didn't mention. mention? Well, yeah, there was actually. <laughs> Federal Reserve note. It should say United States note, but it doesn't. Yeah, you're right. So it means that we're, we're actually paying for things with privately owned paper. That's hmm. crazy. The Federal Reserve um, isn't federal and there are no reserves. It is a society killing, currency killing machine of control called a central bank. Right. But before we get into what central banks are and uh, the pagan monetary policy and all of that, we really need to go back to the beginning. Beginning of what? The beginning of the Federal Reserve. All right, I'm game. <clears throat> but to understand that, we got we're talking about roots. Okay. Like not just the Fed, but like the the whole pagan monetary policy, right? Okay, the pagan monetary system. Yeah, roots. Okay. Babylonian money magic. All right, hit me. <clears throat> but. We got to start with the Rothschild family. Okay. Have you heard of them, Jason? They sound uh, familiar. Yeah. So uh, the Rothschilds trace their lineage all the way back to the Nephilim. So we've talked about those on the show before. I think they're one of the actual 13, the top 13 Illuminati bloodlines. Yeah. And I think within that 13, there's an inner group of, I think, five, which the Rothschilds are part of that inner group. Okay. Yeah. I, I tried tracing out, like, there's a couple different schools that talk about um, how they actually trace their lineage. Mm. Uh, some say that it's directly to Nimrod because they're, um, one of them is actually named Samuel Nimrod Rothschild. Yep. Not that they care about this connection to ancient paganism. No, because it's a very <laughs> common middle name. Right. Nimrod. Everybody's got it. Right. It's like John and Smith. Um, but. I, one of the more recent things that I looked up shows that they actually think that their bloodline comes through Japheth. And you were saying that, that through Japheth came some of the Nephilim, mm -hmm. post-flood Nephilim. Interesting, I was actually started this Bible plan uh, trying to read through the whole Bible. And it goes through the um, genealogies. It says Japheth you know, has Gomer, has uh, Ashkenaz. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. I've, I've heard that name before. Yeah. Because the Rothschilds are considered Ashkenazi Jews. I was like that. I, I'd, I'd never heard that in the Bible before. It was crazy. Yeah. I remember <clears> when um, uh, uh, Henry, not Henry, Stephen Darby uh -huh. touched on that. Okay. The whole Ashkenazi Jews conspiracy, if you will. Right. Um, and that is some very, very interesting stuff. Yeah. So many times you think that the genealogies in the Bible are boring until you hit something like this. You're right. Like, what? But yeah, so the bloodlines ran into the Khazarian region to a family called the Bowers. 
And they eventually changed their name to Rothschild, which means red shield, which was the sign that they had up uh, over their place of business. Yeah, isn't that in German? Yeah, Rothschild means red shield. In German, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't know why I got confused there for a second. Yeah, in German. Um, but the family uh, religiously worshipped the giant winged serpent in their version of paganism. However, there was a, a rapid expansion of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, you know, through the Crusades and into these things when they took over. Okay. They, and it wasn't always nicely, right? So, so they forced conversion a lot of times. Okay. This forced the, um, the Bowers, now Rothschilds, to abandon their paganism, and they had to choose one of these groups. They could either choose to die or be, you know, be killed by Christians, um, Jews or Muslims, or, or pick one to side with. Gotcha. So they <clears throat> uh, they chose Judaism, but combined with they co- combined their paganism, you know, because they they didn't want to let go of their religion. They were just kind of siding with Jews, so they didn't die. They combined their paganism with Sabbatean Frankist version of Judaism. Okay, and the secular idea of Zionism. Um, this it, the weird corrupted version of Judaism taught that. Uh, was it Sabbate Zivi taught that salvation was found in, in committing sins. Mm. The, the idea was that if you were able to commit all of the sins, like it's so backwards from the actual teaching of the Jews that you were supposed to adhere to the law. Okay. He goes, uh, he tried to tell everyone that he was the Messiah. And what you really needed to do is try to commit all of the sins. And if you committed all of the sins, then the true God would present himself. So it was salvation through sin. Not salvation from sin. Right. That is I was like, that's weird. a problem. And, and that's what these, the, the Rothschilds um, adopted as they moved from their paganism. They're like, oh, we'll just mix these two because it sounds great. Hmm. And then Zionism is, uh, it's a nationalistic movement dedicated to establishing a homeland for the Jewish people. Okay. Which makes sense for the Rothschilds because they've been displaced from their home. So all it was very um, keen on the Rothschilds to pick these ideologies and political alignments because it gave them power. It gave them an ability to mix their paganism without notice. And then Zionism gave them uh, a purpose to establish a homeland for themselves. Okay. So it's pretty creative. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, Mayor Amschel Rothschild was ranked fourth out of Forbes 20 most influential men. Who is he? He would be the beginning of our Rothschild Legacy. So okay. when they changed their name from Bowers to Rothschild, it was him. It was Mayor Amschel Rothschild. Okay. Uh, he's considered the father of international finance as well as the Roth, the whole Rothschild banking dynasty starts with him. Okay. Which continued through his children. He's even quoted in saying, "Let me issue and control a nation's money, and I care not who writes the laws." Now this sounds ominous on the surface, which it is. Mm-hmm. But if you really unpack it a little bit it gets way worse All right, because he's not saying, give me all the money of a nation and, and I'll be the most powerful. Okay. The statement is let me issue and control the nation's currency. And I care not who writes the laws, which then means that by controlling the currency, he's above the law because he doesn't care what they say. Like it's, it's pretty sinister. It is. And I noticed that there's an embedded two part nature to this is because not just control the currency. It's also issue issue. So I think yeah. you have to have both of those in play in order for this power power dynamic to exist. Right. And issues even listed first okay. for those that are careful with their words. Issue 
and control a nation's money. Interesting. So when talking about the method that they used and how they rose to such power, you're probably going to hear the term Babylonian money magic. I know uh, I did. I've heard it before, but it's, it was incredibly difficult for me to track down any real information on it. It was so frustrating for me. Okay. Because you kept asking me, you're like, so did you come up with anything on Babylonian money magic? Right. And everywhere that I looked for months, everywhere that I looked, everyone was like, well, this, this is it. You can see that they're practicing Babylonian money magic. But I don't think that they ever went into detail as to what is it. Right. It's like if you would go to McDonald's and you'd be like, okay, so what is a double cheeseburger? A double cheeseburger. It's a double cheeseburger. Right. But what is it? Well, it's, it's in the number two thing. You can see, look, the double cheeseburger's a number two. And That's you're what like, they call a tautology. Is that what it is? Yeah, circular. Circular talk. And talk. I'm like, great, but I want to know what's in the cheeseburger. I want to know if it is Babylonian money magic. What is it that makes it Babylonian money magic? Right. So we got to, because it's the, it's the Rothschilds that actually popularized this term, or at least are the ones using it today. So if you look at it, and we know that the Ashkenazi Jews carried their practices from Babylon um, into where they moved from the um, Khazarian region and, and into subsequent countries. So to, get, to begin this exposition, like many other things, it requires us to expand our traditional limited understanding of some things. And in this case, we have to kind of expand our idea of what we think magic is itself. Okay. We are conditioned in America to think that magic is... Card tricks. Right. Card tricks, waving wands around, Harry Potter stuff. Right. Visual illusions. Right. Stuff like that. <clears throat> That's not really what it is. That would be considered uh, like lesser or lower magic. Okay. Uh, we talked in earlier episodes, uh, three major, fa major facets of witchcraft, and we mentioned it even in the, the recap here, is domination, intimidation, and manipulation. Right. Well, those are forms of witchcraft, but they're, they're not expressly magical, you know? Mm -hmm. So we, we have these, these subtle ideas, but we kind of got to take time to connect all the relations to understanding. Well, I think it's important because you hear magic mentioned so often in contemporary conversations. I mean, Disney has built an entire empire off of this concept of magic and magic cool. And, you know, it's like this pixie dust. Right. You sprinkle, you just it, sprinkle on, it, it on, it makes everything nice. Yeah, it makes it amazing. It's just, oh, we got the little magic in there. <laughs> and you're like, okay, cool, do it. Oh, that's sweet, man. That's magical. We, you got it popping right now, man. That's the magic happening. Right. In fact, there was an amazing basketball player. It was so cool. He he what was he embodied this word? They is Magic Johnson. Yeah. Yep. 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have to say this. If you've ever seen Black Dynamite, there's a whole episode. Is well, there about that? It is because that you get they get to the very end of this episode. And they play off of that word, uh -huh. Magic Johnson. And I'm like, I never <laughs> in my life thought that. I didn't until just until this moment. Just like, moment. <laughs> I don't even know what the podcast is about right, right now. Right <laughs> now, I feel like we have to start over. <laughs> oh, geez, that's funny. That's hilarious. But we see it all the time in uh, uh, music, too. Yeah. You know, what's that that song, Magic? I've got the magic in yep. me. Um, 70s and 80s songs, peppered with magic. Yep. Um, but it all, all of that, I think works to just, um, desensitize, desensitize and corrupt our understanding of what magic is. Because it makes it sound incredibly innocent mm -hmm. and you don't even really, uh, you can hear words that are derived from this core concept and never even tie them together. 
for instance, when, when you have the three wise men who show up to see Christ, uh-huh. they're called the Magi. Right. Never put together that they were practitioners of Babylonian magic. Right. Never put that together, but it is. It's actually like this spiritual energy that in, indues Babylonian witchcraft. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. And it's really interesting even that they were able to show up and, and discern that Christ had been born. Right. And it wasn't through occult practices that they got that information. Actually, it came through Daniel. Daniel, right. Who was over them. Yeah. Not teaching them magic. Right. But showing them true spiritual power. That's why they wanted to kill Daniel. Yeah. It's crazy stuff. But yeah, so the line between the physical and the spiritual isn't always so divided like we think. Okay. You're not either a, what is it, in Harry Potter, I hate to, to even know this, but like a muggle or like a- What'd you I, call me? A non-magic person versus a magic person. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, it's not this completely separate <laughs> world. Um, there's some cultures today that even consider giving someone the silent treatment a form of witchcraft. Hmm. Because you're you're forcing, you're manipulating them wow. by your silence. Okay. Yeah. That's an interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. So I don't appreciate the silent treatment. <laughs> I don't like it either, but I, I never consider it a form of witchcraft because you're trying to manipulate a, a response out of me. Guilt would probably be another form. Yeah. We throw people on the guilt trip, yeah. try to get them to do what you want to do. All forms of manipulation. Right. Emotional manipulation. Right. Where's that dude? Emotional damage. Emotional damage. <laughs> but even Christians, uh, we as Christians or thinking believers we have a lot of these parallels that show up in our um, theology. Okay. <clears throat> there are divine systems put in place that function sep- separate from acute supernatural intervention. Okay. So marriage, for one, um, is an institution that we believe was set up by God. And statistically, if you save yourself for marriage, so if you don't have sex until you're married, statistically, you have an astronomically higher chance of maintaining a healthy marriage. Oh, I can't wait to get married now. (laughs) Right. But a lot of times this isn't talked about, but it's not that chastity is a magic practice, but it's a practice and a method that aligns with an institution that God established. Okay. That helps it, um, helps it function better because it's in alignment with the, the one that created it. Okay. So we have that example uh, let's see, what else do we have? In Corinthians, it talks about if I speak of um, in the tongues of men and angels, mm-hmm. you know, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, uh, if I have faith that can move mountains but don't have love, it means nothing. So we even here we have this idea that um, even acute supernatural abilities fall underneath or like a tier below a a grander method or or way of being or doing something. Okay. Right. So God says to do everything in love, have your speech always be with grace, all of that. So even if you have those, those lower abilities, and this is even how people see it in paganism and in the occult, they're the lower abilities because the, the bigger ones that are a a bigger deal and actually make a larger impact is the methodologies and the way about, or the way that you go about doing something. Okay. So as Satan is always trying to counterfeit God's tactics, <clears throat> we can see here, historically, some of the highest forms of magic aren't acute spellcasting, spell but esoteric knowledge that is gained by a relationship with these supernatural beings. Okay. Rooted in this relationship <clears throat> with the demons and angels or ascended masters, you can learn their systems of magic. 
Okay. Babylonian money magic is this type of high magic. So it seems like something that maybe the Nephilim and the fallen angels, probably more the fallen angels, had, had started to institute when they were building out a system of evil. Right. Because it's like three things that Christians are said to battle. Their flesh, themselves, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. The enemy and, and his minions, and then the system of evil known as the world. Right. So this is what you're, you're talking about? Yep. Got gotcha. you. Sure. So it's learning how Satan or demons, like you were saying, would hijack any given system in order to abuse those that are under it. Okay, wow. Yeah, not good. No. <laughs> so with that understanding as a, as a backdrop, I think we could effectively um, define Babylonian money magic like this. Okay. That it's the Luciferian system of debt slavery that's designed to control large groups of people by manipulating economic situations that produce general monetary enslavement. This is done by creating money out of debt, either by fractional reserve banking or fiat currency, then lending it to a group or nation and leveraging interest so they cannot pay it back. It's a way of controlling people via perpetual monetary slavery. Dude, that is a mouthful. Yeah. Generational monetary enslavement? Yep. That's crazy. I don't. I said that's crazy too many times <laughs> in this episode. But what do you say? That is sinister. Yeah, and that, that, I, I think that's why it's so hard to come up with the definition. They don't want you to know what it's about. No, like in our opening with the synopsis, we were talking about the most diabolical form of enslavement known to man. That that's this. I'd, I'd say so because this is worse. This is not like the physical slavery of antiquity or even in the early ages of America. This is psychological slavery mm -hmm. with the added twist that you think you're free. Right. So it's slavery, but you have to buy your own house and food and, and all of that. Right. And you have the illusion of freedom only to constantly have it perpetually snatched away from you each and every day. Yep. And we keep giving it back to you. At least the slaves in the beginning of the country knew they were slaves. Right. This is worse because yep. this is a new lie that's put on on top of that. Yeah. No, you're not free. You're a slave. You're free. You're, you're free. Good. This is what free freedom feels like. Right. This is what liberty feels like. You're good. <laughs> uh, and these ideas show up in Babylon, as the name implies. Right. But it actually found its way to Europe through these Jews that are not the Rothschild family. Okay. They were actually kicked out of several countries for attempting uh, this type of central bank or uh, Babylonian money magic. Really? Yep. So they had to bounce around a little bit, finally finding themselves in Europe. Okay. And uh, there was the, the Battle of Waterloo. This was a huge step in their advancement. Okay, what happened? So it was uh, Napoleon versus Wellington, okay. I believe. And uh, all of Europe was just hanging on the edge of their seats, waiting to see if Napoleon was going to win or not. Because if Napoleon won, then it meant that European bonds were worth nothing. Because it was like the last straw. Okay. <clears throat> so the Rothschilds, specifically Nathan, had a courier set up to watch the battle. Nathan was one of the five sons, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, Nathan Rothschild. So he had a courier system set up, and they actually got to him, I think it was 24 hours or something, before anyone else knew what happened at the battle. Okay. So he pretends that Napoleon wins. He doesn't outrightly say it, but he like acts all downtrodden, and then he sells all of his government bonds, all of his European government bonds. Which would make everyone think that Napoleon had won. Right. Okay. So everyone else goes, well, shoot, if Nathan's doing it, we got to sell our bonds quick. So everybody sells. 
everybody sold all their government bonds. If everybody's selling, who bought? Nathan did. Shut up. No, he went back and bought almost all of the government bonds that everyone sold before they even found out that Napoleon was actually defeated at Waterloo. Okay, now that's a bad situation, but that is a boss move. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. He's even quoted, he said it was the best business I had ever done. It's incredibly deceptive. <laughs> yes, it is. But wow, because <clears throat> you instantly become the private holder of all of these securities, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, that, that of the nation's debt. I'll just put it that way. You right. become the holder of the nation's debt, which means the nation is beholden to you to pay back. Yep. And not only does it have to pay back debt, it has to pay back interest. And if it can't do that, then it has to secure the debt with real assets. Mm -hmm. And if it defaults on, on, on the debt, he becomes the owner of real tangible assets. Right. It's nuts. And That's diabolical, dude. Right. And this, this little slick maneuver is, gave them the springboard to set up central banks all over the world. Okay. <clears throat> uh, Mayor Amshar Rothschild, he's quoted in saying that the few who understand the system will either be so interested from its profits or so dependent on its favors that there will be no opposition from that class. So he's, he's admitting there's a system. They have a system of control that they're trying to implement. But they think that it's so clever that nobody's going to oppose it. I, I don't know if he's wrong, except for the <laughs> fact that there's a third group. There's a group of people who do understand it, and they're not dependent necessarily on its favor. and They're not interested in its profits. They just find it despicable right? because of its spiritual roots. Yeah. That would be us. Yeah. However, if Spotify offers me $20 million for Operation Red Pill, <laughs> I'm selling you and can, I'm you starting can find us somewhere Operation else on, Blue Pill. I was going to say. That yeah, is exactly pill. what I'm doing. We can do green pills, pink pills. We, we got all get, sorts of colors. We'll it, do rainbow pills. Anytime you got $20 million. I'm just saying, Joe Rogan, scoot over. We're we going to talk about the uh, Babylonian money magic on Spotify. <laughs> right, right. Uh, that's funny. Uh, the nations had fought against this central banking system. So, like, They to, did. We fought here. Yeah. We had, uh, I believe it was the owner of Chase Manhattan. At the time, I think it was the second president, not the second, but Andrew, was it Jackson? It was Andrew Jackson. Yeah. He got into a duel, right? He got into a fight over this whole thing? Well, his his whole platform was about abolishing central banks in America. It was, but I thought that there was an attempted assassination on him that didn't happen. Like, he got into a gunfight over this. Oh, maybe. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I believe that that was a story. I don't have it in front of me, so I hate bringing it up, but right. just the way my mind is working, I believe that that was he got into a gunfight over this whole central banking thing. That's nuts. I didn't know that. We uh, They said one of the one of the things that, that I uncovered doing this research for this episode was that I want to say – I want to say all, but I also don't want to go that far. Okay. So let's say most of the prominent people, prominent presidents that were assassinated uh -huh. were all presidents that opposed central banking. Yeah. I think so. We're, we're real close to all. Yeah. But we'll, we'll get, we can get there in a minute. Okay. My bad. My bad. <laughs> no, it's all right. But no, so if you didn't know anything about Andrew Jackson, you should definitely like him because he opposed central banking. It, and it's weird because in today's society, you don't even, it's not a question. Right. You can't fight against the central bank. It's just a thing. Well, you don't even know what the central bank is. Right. It, it's just, we it, don't, as far as you ask the average American, do we have a central bank? I will guarantee you 11 out of 10 people will tell you no. Right. Right. Yeah. Or the central bank is just the one that's like it, what, Main Street and Maple or something? Like well, it's just the, the well, bank. No, no, no. The central, central bank is the headquarters for my local branch. Right. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, we've got a central bank. It's a, it's right over here. <clears throat> but uh, so Andrew Jackson fought against the central bank, and he was number seven, old number seven. So any uh, Jack Daniels fans can appreciate. I have no a- idea what you're talking about. Andrew Jackson a little bit more. Yeah, I, I don't use Jack when it comes to my <laughs> communion shots. <laughs> okay, uh, but he was even uh, quoted. I have a quote here from Andrew Jackson. It says the bold effort. Uh, the present central bank had made to, made to control the government are but the premonitions of the fate that await the American people should they be deluded into the perpetuation of this institution or the establishment of another like it. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Today's central banks are, are celebrated and even considered absolutely necessary. They are. Here in America, we have the U.S. Federal Reserve System. Which is known as the Fed, right? Yep. And isn't that a privately owned company? Yep. And that's interesting. Because there's like this whole thing about how all that came about. Yeah, there is. (laughs) I was coming back from uh, Georgia and saw signs for Jekyll Island. And, uh. I was like, oh, man. Like, for some reason, even though I had read the book, it was still like this this fake place. And well, you said the book, but you haven't told us what book. The Creature from Jekyll Island okay. by G. Edward Griffin. Uh, that's an amazing book. But, yeah, so it, I shortly after I had read the book, I took a trip to Florida and saw signs, like, off the coast of Georgia, Jekyll Island. I was like, oh, it's a real place. Like, I knew it, but seeing it is is a little bit different. That whole story with Jekyll Island and and everything that transpired there is mind-blowing. It's crazy. There was like this whole thing that was coming about where you had the money trust in New York City, which is basically all the bankers, that really had a financial grip on the nation, and they had run it into the ground. And so people were really upset about it. And so they had this whole clandestine effort come together where they had their representatives meet in this island called Jekyll Island. And you think it would be like, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. <laughs> right. That's but the first it, thing I thought. No, it's actually an island that was owned by one of the 13 Illuminati bloodlines. I want to say it was the Astors, but I'm not sure. Astors or Bundys. Okay. But I can't remember exactly. However, they get together on this thing and they actually hammer out on in one of these buildings this entire Federal Reserve System. And it's very sinister because at the very beginning, what they figured out was that we're the bankers, we're the money trusts, everybody's against us. And they're about to make a bill that's going to shut us down. And so we need to get ahead of this and create our own bill. I mean, if they're going to make a bill, it might as well be our bill. Right. So they start hammering out these details. The very first thing they said, we've got to get the, the mind, the confidence of the public. And so we need to name this in a very clever way. So they call it federal to make people think that it's governmental. Right. And then they call it reserve to make people think that it's actually focused on preventing financial collapse. Okay. Neither one of those are true. Federal Reserve is as much a government agency as Federal Express is. And it's not. <laughs> it isn't. It's a private company. FedEx is a private company. Federal Reserve is private. Yep. It's just cleverly named. That it is. They set this whole thing up, and even the way that they, they, they what they really did that was smart when they set up these provisions in there, they began to set up limitations to things that the Federal Reserve couldn't do. So okay. when the senators and the congressmen are looking at it, at first they would be upset because you're looking at the money trust people who, who basically uh, created this whole idea, this whole system. Okay. And I believe one of them wanted their name uh, on it. I think it was Nelson Aldrich. 
who wanted his name on it. But whoever it was, the dude was like, listen, if they find your name on this, they're going to shoot it down because right. you represent big business. And sure enough, they put his name on it. The first draft got shot down. So they went ahead, went back, made some slight changes, reworded some paragraphs still in their favor, mm -hmm. and got it passed. Okay. Primarily because a lot of the people, the key centers that were against it, saw the fact that they were self-limiting. And they thought bankers wouldn't do that to themselves. Okay. Bankers wouldn't limit their own interests. Right. So this has to be a bill that's for the people. Pass. Jeez. I mean, in fact, they got upset. Some of the, from, from G. Edward Griffin's book, uh -huh. One of the things he talks about is the fact that the people who were crafting this got upset with each other. Like, what are you doing? You're limiting us. And they're like, dude, shut up. Our point is to get this passed. Once we get it passed, we can rechange things. Uh, They've had over 100 changes to the Federal Reserve Act. Really? Yeah. I didn't All know going in the interest of the banker. Of course. Right? Got to do that. Completely crazy. That's so now crazy. people might mistake the fact that the Federal Reserve is the Treasury. Okay. And they actually are not. They are different institutions. The Treasury is responsible for many things, one of those being printing up of money. But oftentimes you hear on like CNN or MSNBC or whatever, the Fed printed up such and such amount of money. And that's really a misnomer. The Fed does not print money. The Bureau of Engraving and Printing, which is underneath the Treasury, is legally responsible for that. Okay. What the Fed does is it orders money. It actually creates IOUs in the form of bonds that it buys. It buys bonds from the federal government, which gives the federal government a transfer of quote-unquote money. And the federal government uses that money to create federal checks to contractors. And the money gets put, digital money, gets put into the system. That's crazy. Does that make sense? It does. And then what's sinister about it is the fact that when it's writing up basically it's IOUs, what the government owes, it doesn't order or print the interest. So it could never pay it back. The government can never really pay it back. What it has to do in order to pay back the interest is create a whole new IOU. Okay. That the Fed would issue out to them. So they just keep buying up control. Absolutely. But they also keep issuing fake money, which you can do because the United States is no longer on the gold standard. I believe it was Nixon who took us off of the gold standard. Okay. Being on the gold standard would have meant that our money is backed by actual physical asset, like gold. Uh -huh. And it's limited. You only have so much gold. Right. So you can't print up more money than the gold that you have. Right. As soon as you take it off of that, you can print up as much as you want. Okay. Hence how you can have a bailout for $1.2 Right. Or you can have a COVID stimulus package for, what, like $2.3? No, I said billion well, it was like 700 billion for tarp COVID was like two trillion it was ridiculous yeah i was like where do you get two trillion dollars you just make it whose bra are you pulling two <laughs> trillion dollars you know how, in our culture when you ask mammy or somebody for for some money and they dig under there you know i'm sure you've seen this even at work yep i'll yep. let the person remain unnamed <laughs> when they when they pull out <laughs> That extra bit of change, and it was tucked up under, and it was warm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know where that money's been. Right. I'm like, whose bra did you pull $2 trillion out of? <laughs> Do you know how long it would take to print $2 trillion? A while. If you printed $1 a second, just to do a trillion would take 32,000 years. Jeez. You $2 trillion? Yeah. Yeah, that mind, that, that figure is astronomically mind-blowing.
Right. It's, you can't even wrap your mind around it. Absolutely. But it's, it's worse than making money out of thin air because it's actually making money out of debt. Yeah. Which is the crazy thing. You talk about a conspiracy. Right. S- since our money has been in the control of the central banks or the Federal Reserve, uh, depressions and collapses, we've seen them like never before. Mm. Since the founding of the Fed, the American dollar has fallen. That is the purchasing power has dropped 2,700%. Which doesn't seem like something you could wrap your mind around it unless you remember at the beginning of this episode, we were talking about the fresco painting. And we're right. talking about that guy was paid $40,000 U.S. in his time frame, yep. I mean, in his day and age, which equated to $708,000 our time. Right. Because of the devaluation of the dollar. Right, which would mean if he was going to take that money and buy a house, he could buy a $40,000 house outright. That would today cost $708,000. Which is absolutely crazy. That's insane. It's impossible to keep up with a system like that. And we were talking about G. Edward Griffin. He says in his book, by remaining behind the scenes, they, the Rothschilds, were able to avoid the, the brunt of public anger, which was directed instead at political figures, which they largely controlled. And we can see that, I mean, inflation in America today is... Putin's fault. It's, you know, just name the politician or whatever. It's all their fault. It's never considered the Fed. Never. Yeah. And we, that's exactly who's responsible. Like those uh, little stickers at the pump that have like Biden or Putin. It says, I did this. Yeah. We should get ones that has the Fed. It'd be like, I did this. Not yeah. that I'm condoning, uh, what is it, graffiti or whatever. Yeah, I heard about the guy that got arrested for leaving those stickers on pumps. Did he? Yeah, the FBI tracked him down. I was like, I didn't think that that was a federal crime. Yeah, so don't do that. We're just saying it would be it would be funny. That's all. That's all. <laughs> but, so he goes on to say, G. Edward Griffin goes on to say, that this is a technique which has been practiced by financial manipulators ever since, and it is fully utilized by those who operate the Federal Reserve System today. Yeah. You know, one of those things that they they put in place to make the Federal Reserve look more official is they broke up, they broke the power structure up into this board of governors, and then they issued stock, and the member banks bought the stock. Okay. But the member banks specifically cannot trade the stock. So it's not like they own it. Not at all. It's just there in principle to look pretty. So it's almost like a, like paying off the the mobster for protection, right? How so? Well, like a tribute. So you show up and, well, to be a member bank, you have to buy these stocks or whatever. I don't think they had to buy them. They were issued to them. And I don't think it was for the sake of the member bank. It's more for the sake of the public. So that they can say, well, listen, we're we're owned by these member banks have shares in us. Gotcha. But now the member banks have their own specific regional board of directors for each regional bank. Okay. And all all they control is that specific region. However, that region can always be overruled by the federal board of, of governors. Of course it can. Absolutely. Which means <laughs> if they were to set a different interest rate for the banks in their region, uh-huh. that was different from the one set by the governing board of directors, the governing board director's interest rate trumps theirs. No argument. That's crazy. So essentially there's nothing you can do. You're right. just there to look pretty. And it's the board of governors that are responsible for what happens underneath the chairman of the federal reserve. Who does not technically have to report to any member of Congress or have presidential oversight? Really? Nope. Is that why they keep saying that they want to audit the Fed or whatever? I mean, you could, but I love what G. Everett Griffin pointed out. It wouldn't do you much good. 
one, it's going to have the appearance that we're doing something. Two, it's going to offer a false solution that really doesn't change anything. Okay. I mean, after two years or however long it takes to, to audit the Federal Reserve, they're going to come and be like, oh, everything looks good. Yeah, that's fair. Right. And then we're like, well, we did it. We did an audit. Everything came up fine. I guess it's a perfectly legitimate system. Let's keep it in play. Yeah. Meanwhile, our our dollar is being immediately devalued. And not only that, the Federal Reserve legally can issue currency for debt that is not just the United States debt. They can issue currency for world debt. That's a problem. Yeah, they can buy bonds from other countries. Oh, okay. And they can turn that into American dollars. Interesting. This whole system, because we're just we're talking about one central bank. We're talking about the central bank of the United States. Right. But the global economy is still built off of the Babylonian money magic principle. There's a central bank of the world, you know, the International Monetary Fund, in conjunction with the World Bank. Right. Delivers out currency the same way the federal government does to the United States government. That's a lot of control. It is, because basically if you want to, if you're a developing third world like Africa, mm -hmm. and you, you want, you need... Africa's not its own country. But if you're a developing third world country in Africa. Okay. <laughs> and you need access to funding. Then what you'll have is a country like China that will come in and give you funding. But you'd have to ask, where does the Chinese government get their funding from? From their central bank. No. That's what you would think. Okay. They get it from the International Monetary Fund. Interesting. It functions the same way. And with it normally comes some sort of binding provision. You know, we're going to give you this money. We're going to need access to certain resources, or you're going to have to employ a certain type of sector of your population, or you can only pay about this much. All controlled through like UN stipulations. Okay. And it gives you that type of control. This helps to build out the financial system of all, all global governments, which would help to produce the structure for a one world financial system. That's nuts. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Without that, you couldn't really understand why somebody like me or like you would really be against the Fed. Right. We think that the Fed should be abolished, not audited. No, that and makes sense. I love what G. Edward Griffin says, you know, basically the number one reason that the Fed should be abolished is because it's incapable of accomplishing its stated objectives. Okay. In a nutshell... The Fed should exist in order to stabilize the economy of the United States. Right. And it's not doing that. No. <clears throat> there are at least six reasons for the Fed to be abolished. Okay. It's a cartel operating against the public interest. It's the supreme instrument of usury. It generates our most unfair tax, which is inflation, which we are currently seeing right now. It encourages war. It destabilizes the economy, and it's an instrument of totalitarianism. You know, global debt right now is at $226 trillion. That's a lot. Debt. <laughs> debt. That's a lot of debt. <laughs> it is, but I mean, it's like you can't, you can't conceptually put your mind around that much debt. You really can't. Especially if you're filtering this concept of debt through what the Bible says that the the borrower is slave to the lender. Right. If you have $226 trillion of debt in the economy, 
then that is a lot of people that are slave to the lenders. And you have to ask who's the lender. The lender isn't necessarily Huntington National Bank or Fifth Third or PNC. Right. No, the lender would be the Rothschild International Banking Cartel. That's crazy. So they have the whole world enslaved. They're trying to work that out. In fact, I believe, I believe, I think it was you who told me that there are currently only two countries. There were three at the time you told me. Three countries that did not have central banks in them. Mm-hmm. Iran, Cuba, and North Korea. Right. Now there are two. Right, because Cuba fell to the reign of mon- um, Babylonian money magic. Yeah. So I'm not going to say the Rothschilds control the world. I will tell you what, they seem to control the financial world, the financial resources, which makes makes a person wonder, you know, we've been hearing about Bitcoin a lot. I'm not no fan, financial advisor or planner. Right. But this whole thing about Bitcoin is alarming to those who have built the central bank model. Yeah. Because it functions outside of that. Right. You and, definitely want to have your hand on it. <clears throat> yeah. I can't see people who have spent this much time and shed this much blood. Actually, I mean it shed blood we're gonna talk about that in a minute i can't imagine that they would freely allow a free currency like bitcoin to exist without them actually controlling it or getting rid of it right because it challenges the system it does and it's all about control and not just i mean like um mayor amshel said that he doesn't care who writes the laws right because by issuing and controlling the money you're able to manipulate all kinds of things and not just the economy i mean globally speaking there are quite a few central banks like the European Central Bank, uh, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, Swiss Swiss National Bank, the Bank of Canada, and the Reserve Bank of Australia. Yeah. These are huge. These are huge financial centers. They are. We can't really talk about the intricacies of all central banks, but I would guess they're pretty similar in their structure. And if you live in a, in a different country, I'd encourage you to look into the founding and functioning of your specific banking system because it might really surprise you. It might. If it's anything like the Fed, it'd which be an I'm, interesting story. Right, which I'm going to assume it is. Right. You definitely want to begin to educate yourself on that because they will not teach you this in school. Nope. They do not want you to know this. Debt slavery is one of, one of the six essential ways to control the working populace. Interesting. It's factored in and it's a necessary component for gaining control. Huh. Because once you can't, once you are strapped to the system and you can't decide uh, what you want to do because of what you have to pay, Uh your options become limited. Okay. And what you'll do to make those payments when, when the screws are put to you becomes an issue. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So have you ever heard this idea that all wars are banker wars? Yeah, actually I have heard that. All right. (laughs) So uh, would you would agree with that statement? I would. I think so. All right. Tell I, me why. I think. Um, well, if you if you look beyond just the the story that we're being told about the the wars and what's actually happening, mm-hmm. you can see a what is it a, a crimson thread? Is that what okay. they call it? Yeah. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, number three. We quoted him earlier about his opinion of the Bible, but he also has a pretty interesting view of central banking. Too. Wait, why is he number three? Is that another alcoholic thing? No, you can like whiskey without being an alcoholic. Okay, that's true. That was no. A, he's the third. He was the third president. That was a slight jab. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I'm not saying Andrew Jackson is the embodiment of Jack Daniel's whiskey. He was the seventh president. I really wanted to see if you were going to catch that. <laughs> oh, I caught it, man. Anyway, 
That's great. Ooh. So, Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, <clears throat> <laughs> he says, if the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all the property until their children wake up homeless on a continent that their fathers conquered. Wow. I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. The issuing power should be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. You know, I don't agree much with Mr. Jefferson, but, I think but that right there, yeah. I think he is spot on. So uh, Nathan Mayor Rothschild his retort would be, well, you buy when the cannons are firing and you sell when the trumpets are blowing. Wow. Yeah. It's not even an argument against it. He's like, oh, no, that's that's how we do things. Like that's smart fiscal policy. Yeah. So if we're going to make this charge that all wars are banker wars, mm -hmm. let's go through some. All right. So let's take the Civil War. Slavery was actually a side issue. Not that it wasn't important, but for the war's sake, it was only a side issue. For the sake of my people, I have to insert this right here. Hold, wait, first of all, <laughs> you're not going to speed past that. Like, you didn't just say what you just said. <laughs> it was actually uh, one of economics. It was a war more of economics. Okay. And uh, the Rothschilds, the Kabbalist bankers, had too much invested in America to let the union fall apart. So if you look at even what Abraham Lincoln said, he said that it's not, I, it's not my job to... Um, free slaves. If I could preserve the union and not do it, I'd do that. I just want to preserve the union, which was the interest of the bankers, which is interesting. Okay. So the national superpowers actually all had a vested interest in what happened during the Civil War. If you imagine uh, England had just lost, not just, but lost the Revolutionary War. Okay. So things aren't looking so good across the pond. We might want to have something to say about this. Yeah, they're not getting taxes or revenue from us. Right. Okay. So France had actually moved into Canada and England had moved into Mexico as a group effort to deal with the fallout of the Civil War. Now, you don't typically hear about these things because they didn't, they didn't move troops. They didn't actually attack. But like the chess pieces were moved in preparation. Okay. And then even Russia moved fleets um, into the ocean awaiting this, this ball to drop if something was going to happen because they were afraid that if America fell and then got conquered by France and England, that it was Russia against the world. So they mm. were going to get involved if, if things got, got bad. Okay. So All yeah. of this is on Lincoln's doorstep? Yeah. With the whole, we're going to war? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's the North telling the South, basically, that you have to accept our means of production. Right. And we're going to gut your means of production, which is your free labor force. Yep. Which, I mean, personally, I think the slavery is completely wrong and, and an immoral practice, especially the way it was done in the Americas. Right. We're not talking about indentured servitude or employment because there was a moral factor where people were dehumanized and treated worse than animals. Oh, absolutely. Right. But from an economic perspective, if you tell a group that a group who has an economy that's built on free labor, you can no longer have free labor. You just collapse their economy. Right. I'd be like, I was going to China and being like, you have to pay people full price for what everything's worth. <laughs> yeah. You're going to collapse their economy because of what it's built on. And it really wasn't like, again, we want to stress that we don't agree with slavery, right? Right. Clearly it was a bad thing. but It was it, a wicked thing. It was. Yeah. 
and I'm not, I'm not saying this to belittle. I'm just want to further expound on the point that it's, it wasn't a humanitarian effort, the civil war. That's how it's pitched in history class. It is. But one thing that I thought was interesting is the, in the slavery that was happening in the North, wasn't anything like the South. I'm not equating that, but I'm just saying the, the abuse of people is because once Abraham Lincoln couldn't convince people to join the army, that he started a draft and hmm. was forcing people. Like he was he, scripting them. Right. He okay. had um, riots and things in the North because nobody wanted to fight this war. Nobody wanted to go to arms. But people were being imprisoned and beaten and forced into the war hmm. from the North. Like it was just, it's way uglier than, than what we're taught in school. Okay. It's crazy. <clears throat> but after, uh, let's see, sorry. The Rothschilds lent an exuberant amount of money in order to win and preserve the union, okay. which is what they wanted. But Lincoln wasn't sold on the idea of the bankers and their control, which is why he even issued greenbacks and said that you could pay. It was a, it was a form of currency that you could pay taxes with and stuff. Okay. So even though he was taking their money and doing their will, he wasn't completely on board, <clears throat> which is why they assassinated Lincoln because after the civil war was over, the bankers expected Lincoln to allow them to set up a central bank in America. And I believe John Wilkes Booth, that's the guy who killed him, right? Yeah. I believe he had Illuminati ties. Yep. Okay. And because Abraham took Abraham Lincoln took their money and then refused them uh, central bank access to America, that's when he got assassinated. Interesting. Yeah, it's crazy. Abraham Lincoln says, I see in the near future a crisis approaching that approaching that unnerves me and causes me to tremble for the safety of my country. Corporations have been enthroned and an era of corruption in high places will follow. And the money power of the country will endeavor to prolong its reign by working upon the prejudices of the people until all worth is aggregated in a few hands and the Republic is destroyed. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. This covers the civil war. Yep. What about uh, World War One? Well, that's... Is there any connection? There is. Okay. So we have the... It's called the sinking of the Lusitania. All right. You I'm may listening. or may not have heard of it. So in World War One, <clears throat> the banks... And by banks, we do mean the descendants of the Nephilim, now Rothschilds, had lent money to Russia and Europe, and it was in their best interest that they wanted Russia and Europe to win, right? Okay. I mean, they play both sides, but they do want somebody to win. Gotcha. So it was looking like Jim, Germany was pulling ahead, so the bankers had to protect their investments. All right. They instructed England to alter their ships so that warships and civilian ships were almost indistinguishable. They painted over logos. They changed the flags that they were flying. So if you were in a U-boat, because the U-boats were all over the water, it made it really difficult to tell the difference between a military vessel and a civilian vessel. Yeah, because they're underwater, and they'd have to come up and through Periscope. You'd have to look. Right. Okay. And I've heard reports that British ships were painted sometimes in camouflage, not just to make them harder to spot from a U-boat, but even in paint that would make them look like they were civilian vessels. Right. Interesting. <clears throat> but they did this because, um, oh, shoot, what was his name? Forgot his name. Churchill. Okay. Churchill was a part of this because he was funded by the, Rothschilds. the Rothschilds. He was part of this plan <clears throat> to confuse the U-boats. They wanted to incite the U-boats to accidentally in quotations, attack an American vessel. Which would incite war. Right. They even had intel 
that the U-boats were planning an attack on what they thought was a military vessel, but they, the Europeans knew was an American vessel, and they would not let the information get out. They wouldn't let them run the story in the news. They wouldn't let them warn people not to get on the Lusitania. Like, they knew this was all going to happen. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> Dude, that sounds like a blood sacrifice. Yeah. In it, a certain sense, you, you're sending people knowingly, not even in defense of, of, of a nation or of a cause. Not that that's really good. But you're sending innocent people to their death, and it's preventable, and you're sitting on the information. Right. It's horrible. Yeah. But the, it was effective because after all the uh, U.S. citizens were killed on the Lusitania, America's like, okay, we're going to get involved now. Hmm. We'll move ahead. World War II. You got something for that? I do. All right. Yeah. Hitler was moving from the central bank currency because he was funded by the Rothschilds. <laughs> I'm kind of sick of saying this quote, funded by the Rothschilds, funded by the Rothschilds. But he recognized that the, the, the amount of uh, control that this put on him and his economy, and he didn't want to do anything about it. Or he, he didn't want to continue working in their debt slavery system. Okay. He was at least savvy enough to recognize it. So he started his own currency in Germany and clearly, clearly uh, the central banks aren't going to like that. No. <laughs> and the America wasn't necessarily interested in getting involved in the war because uh, American industrialists had vested interest in Germany. You know, they were, you know, Ford had warehouses and stuff over there. So America's got no reason to join this, this battle that's going on overseas. Right. But Hitler slipped out of control of the central banks. So they had to incite the bombing of Pearl Harbor. For what purpose? To, to bring about, again, to bring about this superpower, which is interesting because in the past it looks like America was not excited about jumping into these major conflicts. Okay. And now <laughs> you can't keep them out of them. Well, i tell you what's interesting about what you're saying here. I've heard reports that the U.S. military had already had reports of the Japanese supposedly coming into Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. Like a significant amount of time that they could have prevented it, and he's intentionally sat on it. Yeah. And under this is Roosevelt. He's the president right now. Okay. Which means he's a 32nd degree Freemason. Huh. Same Roosevelt that was doing the back of the dollar bill. Interesting. He's also connected the Roosevelt's and the Delanors are part of the Astor bloodline. Okay. 13 Illuminati bloodlines. Right. Which I'm thinking he's got to have some mm. knowledge or input about what's going on. Got to. On some level. Right. I don't know exactly how the inner workings work. I don't know if they compartmentalize heavily and don't tell. But I'm thinking somebody knew something. Right. Yeah, because like you were saying, we knew that, that Pearl Har the attack on Pearl Harbor was coming. But if you're sitting in a position of a president, not elected, but selected... Right. And you're there as the figurehead, then you have the power to make the country wait. Yeah. And then commit us to war under the certain this this auspices that there was a humanitarian tragedy. Right. When, because you, you have to maintain some level of propriety. Like if the if the US government is really just doing whatever it wants, whenever it wants, without any consensus of the people. But they're not going to fight their own wars. They gotta send us. Right. So the only way to send us is to get us emotionally upset enough, which would be Hegelian dialectic. Yep. You got to do problem, reaction, solution. 
right? So yeah. if, if you if you have a solution, which is you want to get us in the war, you have to incite a problem that will produce the reaction where we say we want to go to war. Hence, Kaplowy. I don't mean to make it sound so trite. Kaplowy. Yeah, I, sh- I mean, I'll find <clears throat> a better explosion sound effect. But hence Pearl Harbor, uh-huh. because that's going to get everybody's emotions engaged. And, and naturally, we're going to want to commit our sons right. and our futures. Blood rage in the yeah. American people. Absolutely. That's it's, maniacal. It's all the satanic control matrix. Yeah. It's nuts. Absolutely maniacal. Yeah. Then we'll, we'll take uh, Kennedy, number 35, still not an alcohol. <laughs> you mean president? The 35th president? The 35th president, yeah. Well, you didn't say that. You just said number. <laughs> Sorry, I was dead set on making sure that you weren't going <laughs> to jump all over it. Yeah, so President Kennedy, the 35th president of the United States. <laughs> oh, number 35. But he made enemies with the CIA, CIA because he vowed to dismantle it. Okay. He recognized the corruption that stems from, from all of this nonsense. He also made enemies with the Rothschild-controlled central banks, because he began printing his own United States notes. Like we said in the beginning, one of the things that bothers me that's on our our $1 bill is it says Federal Reserve note. Okay. Well, Kennedy recognized this too, and he started printing United States notes because he didn't think that the Fed should exist. He wanted to abolish the Fed. Now, wait a minute. That's fascinating because that means whatever decision he made to rectify this Seems like it went into effect immediately. It didn't take 5, 10, 15 years. Right. Yeah, he started printing money right away. I think he printed, I mean, I don't know how much he printed, but more than $40,000 worth of currency. And this still would have been backed, this would have been backed by gold. Yes. Interesting. Yep. Which, it sounds like the correction to the system could actually happen almost overnight. I think it could. It'd be uncomfortable for sure. Right. It could be corrected. But more about what he did, uh, the Foundation for Truth and Law, which is a website, they actually made this statement, which was really interesting. Okay, what you got? They said, on July 4th, 1963, a virtually unknown presidential decree, Executive Order 11110, was signed by President John Fitzgerald Kennedy with the intention to strip the Federal Reserve Bank of its power to loan money to the United States federal government at interest. With the stroke of a pen, President Kennedy declared that the privately owned Federal Reserve Bank would soon be out of business. This matter has been exhaustively researched by the Christian Common Law Institute through the Federal Register and Library of Congress. And the Institute has concluded that President Kennedy's executive order has never been repealed, amended, or superseded by any subsequent executive order. In simple terms, it's still valid. You're kidding me. Nope. So this is still on the books. Still on the books. We're, what are we doing? Ignoring it? They just ignored it. That's crazy. Yep. It just so straight they up. killed the guy and then ignored the executive order. Yeah, because it was only six months after he signed this executive order that they killed him. Well, you know what's crazy? Right after that, we have the Gulf of Tonkin. What's that? It's another false flag event, because that's essentially what you've been talking about with these banker wars. Right. False flag events that are created in order to 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 garner support and public support uh, for, for military action. 
the Gulf of Tonkin was apparently this military action that was incurred in the v- in the Vietnam era, era. Okay. Where supposedly one of our ships was attacked in the Gulf, which meant that we had to commit ourselves to military action because one of our vessels has been attacked, which was the precipitating action for the Vietnam War. A war that supposedly Kennedy didn't want to get into. Interesting. I didn't even know that. Yeah, it seems to be this pattern. Now, you get labeled by the woke community as being a conspiracy theorist when you start <laughs> presenting some of these facts. Right. But this is clearly, if you start talking about false flag events, oh my gosh, you must be a conspiracy theorist. Okay, you come up with another title for this. I thought false flag was cool, but maybe you prefer lies. <laughs> maybe, right. that's, maybe that's a better title. But that is a orchestrated event. Yeah. And it's crazy. Right after Kennedy, this happened. And then we lost, what, 70,000, 75,000 men? I think so. It's a uh, you, lot of Yeah, people. military personnel in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. All for something that Kennedy supposedly didn't want to actually engage in. Yeah. Now, I don't know the economic fallout or benefit, if you will, for the other parties for us going to war. I know there's a benefit militarily whenever war is incited. But from a central bank Babylonian money magic perspective, I haven't traced it out for Vietnam. Okay, yeah, I think it would be interesting to look at. Yeah. Because I can see with the first war that I remember growing up, which is Iraq. Uh Uh-huh. I can see where that happened. Okay. When we went into Iraq originally, Saddam invades Kuwait. But Saddam's put in power by the very president that invades him later. (laughs) Like Bush when he was when he was over the CIA. Uh Uh-huh. Helped to establish and, and helped to create the conditions and put Saddam in power in Iraq. Okay. Then as president, years later, not that, not that far either, because he's CIA director under Carter. Right. Then there's Reagan. Reagan's, I think, two terms. And then there's Bush, who was his VP. Bush comes to power, and then we go to war. So it's not that long. No, it's not. Right. It's a really short short window. Jeez. And then he, we, we, we go to war with Iraq, who supposedly invaded Kuwait because they wanted their assets. But it's also said that Saddam was getting ready to take Iraq off of the central bank model and do his own currency. Jeez. That'd be the reason. Seems like they make a message. Yeah. If you get in with the central bank, you do not get out. Yeah. You get out the cost of your own life. That's crazy. That's scary. It really is, because, I mean, there's a blood right that seems to be involved here. Which, I mean, and that's a spiritually significant term. Okay. You, the blood rituals that are going on, I mean, if you can only get out by way of shedding blood, or if you getting into it requires the shedding of blood and the continual shedding of blood in various ways from economic decisions or economic situations that are created. I'm looking at this from a different perspective going, are we really doing blood sacrifices here to appease the gods that are over this system? Yeah. The god mammon? Is that is that what we're doing? It would seem like it. It really would. Man. The love of money. Not money. The love, love of, of money. money. Yeah. Which raises the question, what does money get you? I love what G. Edward Griffin said. Look, when you have all of the material the material wants that you, you could have in that life satisfied, uh-huh. you've got enough money to, to take care of those pleasures. What else is there for you? Control. Power. Power. Yeah. Power would be what, what you're constantly after. That's the new game. Okay. It's not about Lambos or yachts or private jets and all that. That's what we, the lady, will look at and be like, oh, I can't wait. Once you've got enough that you can buy those 
you know, ad nauseum, you don't care. Right. You have to find some, some other form of meaning. And it seems like power is really that thing that they go after, which is why they seem to love money because money gets you influence and influence can get you power. Yeah. To that point. Yeah. I mean, the Rothschild's influence is far more than just the, the, the wars and the money that we talked about. Right. <clears throat> the Rothschilds established cutouts. So we have the Rockefellers, and I'm sure some, some people out there have heard these names. We have the Rockefellers in oil, the Carnegies in steel, E.H. Harriman in the railroad. Mm. They all got their success from Rothschild money. Okay. These were the ultimate powerhouses in the early days of America. Right. So what a cutout is, and, and if you do we, much research. Sorry, we forgot uh, JP. Morgan. Okay. He's also a significant Rothschild cutout. Yes. Because they've said that uh, Rockefeller, Carnegie, and Morgan, at the time where they were both all three active, all three active in U.S. economy, uh-huh. actually had 98% of the nation's wealth split between the three of them. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, so the Great Depression, all that stuff that, that happened afterwards where nobody could find work, uh-huh. is not because this country didn't have wealth. Think of it. You've, you've got Rockefeller practicing uh, social Darwinism. Right. And basically exploiting whoever he can. Mm-hmm. You've got Carnegie that's quite a, pretty much in line with it. He's not as bad as Rockefeller, but he's doing the same thing. you got J.P. Morgan, uh, Pierpont, John Pierpont Morgan, who's, who's doing the whole banker financing of a lot of these moves. In fact, he's got so much money. He comes to Carnegie. Carnegie wants to get out of the steel business. And he's like, I'll buy you out. Give me a figure. Carnegie's like, please, you ain't got that much money to buy me out, pimping. He said, make your offer. Carnegie was like, mm, let me think. <laughs> yeah, okay, two, carried one, and a zero. Mm. Wrote it down on a piece of paper. Boy, cut him a check. And Carnegie's like, what? That's crazy. You got that? He said, excuse me, you on my property. Go ahead and get off. Be gone, peasant. <laughs> wow. I mean, and Carnegie thought it was an absolutely astronomical figure. And right. Carnegie's got money. So yeah. what figure did you come up with that's mind-blowing to you as a multi-millionaire slash billionaire? Right. And, and somebody else was like, like, cool. Yeah, is that that's it? <laughs> I was cool. I got you. <laughs> I thought you were going to give me a real number. Right. Paper plastic, fella. <laughs> wow. That's, that's so much money and power. I can't even imagine... Yeah, so, like that. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interject. No, no, that was good. That was good. <clears throat> but all of these people, like even the, so the Carnegie's and the uh, JP Morgan, they all get their money from the Rothschilds. Right. So they're cutouts. And what a cutout is, is it's like a front business. So if you've watched any mobster shows, a front business looks like a legitimate company while performing the illegal deeds, you know, behind the counter. Okay. So whether it be laundering money or you're doing drug deals on the back or whatever. So a cutout is similar to that. It's a person who looks like an independent success, but functions with the money and for the interest of those that are pulling the strings. So that's what a cutout is. Okay. Jeff Bezos is a cutout. So he starts this business in his, uh, in his garage, right? Okay. And then randomly gets a multi-billion dollar deal just to house the CIA servers. Wow. That doesn't just happen. Right. So all his money really comes from Rothschild money, from central bank money. And they prop him up. <clears throat> they prop out these cut up, cutouts, excuse me, because it would be suspicious if everything said Rothschild. If it was Rothschild oil, Rothschild pizza, Rothschild diamonds, Rothschild shipping, then we'd all start to get pretty suspicious of what was going on. Right. 
So they they make these cutouts to confuse everyone and think that, you know, there's actual freedom. It's actually a free market. Okay. This allows them to, to dominate or enforce their domination over what we think is free, the free market, all undetected. For instance, the owners of BlackRock State Street and Vanguard are Rothschild cutouts, just like the people we mentioned already. These three corporations alone own controlling interest in almost every publicly traded company around the world. Wow. Yeah. And Mr. Skep, if you're out there, I can hear you. <laughs> Go to Yahoo Finance. Don't do it. Yep. No. Because this don't. ruined your like three it weeks really of did. your life. <laughs> it did. This set me over the edge. Because it was you and your brother, you're sitting there talking about this, and I'm like, this can't be real. Mm-hmm. And I went and looked. I went to Yahoo Finance, pulled up the, uh, what is it, stockholder? I think it's a stockholder tab. Yeah. Investors yeah. or stockholders, right. something like that. And it shows you, like, what, the top 10 yeah. shareholders in each whatever in company. Each co- whatever company you're looking at. And almost to a fault, the top four, because it started moving a little bit. Uh-huh. But then the top four is Vanguard, State Street, and BlackRock. Yeah. It's crazy. Completely scary. I'm talking about companies <clears throat> that you figure were in competition with each other. Right. Like I looked up Apple and I looked up Google and I looked up Samsung. They own. They have the top three investors in all three of those companies. Right. I looked up Pepsi and Coke. Yeah. Yeah. This really started messing with me. I was up for hours going, you've got to be kidding me. Right. Because a huge part of our economy is supposed to be this free market. Yeah. And competition. Competition is supposed to drive the market, make better products and all of that. But it's all a farce if the same three companies or corporations who get their money from the same place right. own everything. Or at least controlling Have interest controlling interest in everything. Right. It's nuts. And it's all relatively easy, easy information to find out. But nobody really wants to look under that bandage to see how bad that wound really is. Nah, man, I got to watch Big Bang Theory. I ain't got no time to be looking at this. <laughs> it's all about control. Yeah, the, that messed me up, dude. Absolutely blew my mind. I, um, I'm going to tell you right now, we have definitely dropped some serious information on people. Yeah, this was a heavy episode. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I understand if a person's walking away from this going, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, it, it's going to take a moment to process all the stuff we've been talking about today because it, it's been an enormous amount. And I think, you know, it might be good for a person to just take a step back for a minute and let it digest. I would agree. But I also think that people should take the next step and do some additional research on their own. Right. Don't just take our word for it. In fact, we'll make it simple for them. We'll go ahead and on our site, truthfullyarmed.com, we'll post some links there that they can go and do additional research. We'll do some links for the federal government because I know that's a complicated concept to kind of wrap your mind around. There's a talk that G. Edward Griffin gave on the Federal Reserve that is absolutely phenomenal on YouTube. We'll link up to that. Okay. Uh, And we'll put some some additional links, some stuff that um, was really really impactful for us doing this research online. Right. Definitely, we're also going to include a digital copy of the U.S., back of the U.S. dollar bill that's been decoded by truthfullyarmed.com. Yep, Jason did a great work on it. Oh, thank you, sir. Let's get that circulated around out there. Yeah, you guys. I mean, send that around. Seriously. Not because uh, we decoded it here, but because that information really needs to get out. Yep. But we'll go ahead and link that up. Just go to our website, truthfullyarmed.com, on the main menu. 
select podcast, and then select show notes from the drop-down menu. And just look for the broadcast date of the show, and you should see linked resources um, from this podcast. Also, we'll put up there a link for Bloodlines of the Illuminati, right. which, which will be really good. Yep. Um, and if you don't want to go that way, because that's really like the formal way, whatever podcast platform you're listening to the show on, if you look in the show description, you should see a link that says show notes and additional resources. Just click that link. It'll take you right to the same place that I was talking about before. And you can see these, these uh, additional resources that we're including for you just to help you get a better handle on what we talked about today. Cause there's no way just in a single listening, you guys are going to be like, okay, I got it. Right. I mean, if you do, Please join the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get an extra mic. We, we promise we'll get it the same day. In fact, we'll go into debt. <laughs> It'll be worthwhile for that, for that individual. No, that's that's powerhouse that we need to have on the show. Yeah, I know somebody that'll lend us some money. <laughs> <laughs> right? They got good gobs of it. Oh, uh, that's funny. But now with an audience this size, we know someone's always bound to ask that age-old question. Let's see, what is that? Why does any of this matter? Yeah. Like we just blew their whole world up. Faith in the country, faith in the money in your pocket. There is, and there's still that person's like, nah, yeah, I mean, so what? Uh, it's not going to stop me from getting PlayStations. Right. See, we call this the Ayala effect. It's the need to sift through the information in order to find meaning. If you can't provide meaning for a person and all you give them is facts, or if you only give them problems without a solution, then all they end up hearing is this. <laughs> <laughs> so why is this information important? We're so glad that you asked. Because this war is still going on, but it's not just relegated to invisible beings fighting over something nobody can see. That's Sunday school theology. The cosmic war pours through the dimensional divide, moving governments, entertainment, and economics. They're after more than just your soul. They want to steal your hope, kill your thought life, and destroy your will. These tactics have been crafted by the hands of those opposing the living God of the Bible. You know, sadly, it's those people who are the mortal enemies of God, you know, rogue agents that serve the interests of Lucifer. And sometimes they do this intentionally. They know exactly what they're doing. But other times it's it's unintentional. It's unknowing. And doesn't matter because they are still our enemies nonetheless. Right. And the Bible tells us, man, it tells us that we shouldn't be ignorant of our enemy's schemes. It's interesting that that's the first thing before we even get a charge to a course of action. You know, they always talked about in, in old battle movies, your biggest weapon is this thing between your ears. Right. It's your mind. Yep. I would say in the spiritual world, from a Christian perspective, it's even deeper than that. It's your spirit and your mind and your spirit are connected. But it's that inner part of you that's that is the the focal point. It is the thing that Satan is after, but it's also the most one of the most dangerous weapons in this war. And educating your mind, educating yourself is super important because, like Christ said, the truth is empowered to free those enslaved by it. That's the Spears Amplified Version. <laughs> you know, Scripture, King James Version, the truth shall set you free. Right. But essentially, free of what? Why, why do I need to be free? Because lies ensnare you. They put you in bondage. That's why you have to get the truth. That's why you have to educate yourself. There's an intentional reason why the satanic system of education, not just the formal system of education, but the overarching system of how we get information is inundated with 
blocks and oppression of truth and stopping information from getting out. Things that if you knew what was really going on, you'd make a different set of decisions. Yep. It's that reality of knowing that you would choose differently if you knew the truth for why you're not taught the truth. Yeah, That's why they don't wave a flag and be like, truth, truth right here. Let me tell you how I'm deceiving you. <laughs> you you'll need this. Right. It doesn't happen. So you got to do a little bit of work. Now, we've done a lot of the work for you in the sense that we've tracked down what we think are credible sources. We've tracked down reputable places where you can actually take the time to listen to what these people are saying and not have to waste additional time searching for it. Right. But you got to be willing to just put that extra time in. Right. It's worthwhile. This is how you get the information out. This is how you get around the control systems built into the matrix that's designed to keep people oppressed. Yeah. And when we say educate yourself, I think it'd be better to think arm yourself because that's what we're really talking about to Absolutely. arm yourself. So you got to, you got to stack the ammo. So try it with this podcast. We try to give you all kinds of ammo, right? Uh, you can look at other places. Like we'll post resources on our website. We got truthunedited.com. Check out Stephen Darby ministries, the Ted and Austin Brower show at healthmasters.com. Wow. <laughs> Scott, Scott Ritzma <laughs> or even call for an uprising on YouTube. This is just a few, yeah, a few of the places that you can go. And the Holy Spirit, we're just giving you a handful so that you don't have to ask that question. Well, where, where do I go? What do I do? Because that can feel um, hopeless. Right. We don't want you to feel that way. There really is hope in this war. That's one of the things Satan is trying to steal from people is hope so that they respond in a hopeless, obedient subservient fashion. Right. So we're trying to stack the deck in your favor, give you the ammo you need right at your fingertips. Still got to do the work. Right. This is all basic stuff. Then the Holy Spirit will probably step in on top of that and begin to direct additional resources to you that's yeah. unique to you that, you know, helps to answer some of these questions because it's a relational exchange. Right. You know, we can't factor out the input of, of the Holy Spirit and all of this. This is true. And we don't, I don't want listeners to do that either. I don't want them to feel that it's all on them just to educate themselves. Cause it wasn't all on us. Right. You know, there were specific things we had to do, but the Holy spirit stepped in and began to direct our steps. And that's a key thing. Directing your steps implies action on your part. While you start moving, I start directing. Right. But standing and doing nothing is not what he's talking about and not what he's expected of his followers. We have to get busy doing something and he'll refine that process or refine that approach so that we get the information and things that we need. I agree. Well said. Thank you. But I like what you said about education, arming yourself. Okay. There's this there's this scene from Avatar that I love when when the uh, the safe the general he's like the safety officer uh -huh. really tells people that you have to develop a strong mental aptitude. Okay. So that's essentially what we mean when we say educate yourself. It's a different type of aptitude that you need to develop. In fact, just just for the people. Can I do it for the people? Let's do it for the people. Ah, listen to this real quick. You are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. If there is a hell, you might want to go there for some R&R &R after a tour on Pandora. Out there beyond that fence, Every living thing that crawls, flies, or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. We have an indigenous population of humanoids called the Navi. 
They're fond of arrows, dipped in a neurotoxin that'll stop your heart in one minute. And they have bones reinforced with naturally occurring carbon fiber. They are very hard to kill. As head of security, it is my job to keep you alive. I will not succeed. Not with all of you. If you wish to survive, you need to cultivate a strong mental attitude. You've got to obey the rules. Pandora rules. That captures it for me. Yep. You got to obey the rules. These are spiritual rules. Yep. And there are ideas that are naturally reinforced with carbon fiber. They're very hard to kill. Very hard. And you have to develop this strong mental aptitude. You have to realize that you are here in a war zone. Right. I ain't telling people to go to hell for R&R. &R. Right, right. No, no, that's a little too far. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, for me, it really captures, it really encapsulates that idea. Right. What the Christian, what the person who has a, who is a serious follower of Christ, what they are up against in this war. Yep. And when we say educate yourself, this is what we mean because of the environment that we serve in. Exactly. So if you've, if you're listening to this podcast, if you've taken the red pill, you're not in Kansas anymore. That's right. So there are some other things I think that you can do. Okay. So yeah, educate yourself, arm yourself. Um, but we also recognize that investments is important. Like we've talked about money and stuff. So it's, it's not outside of our purview um, that most of the people recognize Investing your money in the right things is important, mm -hmm. but we also have to invest our trust in the right things. That's a really good insight. See, I've, I've heard people talk excitedly about, oh, I get to retire in only 13 years. Mm -hmm. For me, I'm still young. I don't, <laughs> I don't get it, but that's a <laughs> long time to trust in something provided by organizations known to lie. Dude, you are spot on. And this hits close to home because like I just found out for the company I work for, I haven't had a chance to search it down. But one of our one of my coworkers mm -hmm. was telling me that the pension for us is already bankrupt and that our company had to take some of that uh, stimulus from uh -huh. COVID and apply it to our pension. Really? And then even when they did that, I think it was like one hundred fifty billion. They're still short. Jeez. And they failed to count for something. And so they don't have the money to still cover. So now, uh, supposedly, they're getting ready to change what they offer new hires. No longer offering a pension. They'll just offer a more enhanced 401k. Yeah, that's, what, that's what like, they did at my company, too. They I'm stopped like, offering. What have you been doing? What are you doing with the money? Yeah. Right. And this is coming for me. I've, I've heard all my life, you know, get a good retirement. Right. And you should be working towards retirement. You know, you got to think about that right now. Start talking to Fidelity Mutual, Prudential, all these people. They, hey, get your retirement going. Mm -hmm. And you're investing real, you're, you're investing money, which represents opportunity to purchase real assets. And to, you're, you're investing into a system where it may not be there or it may not have the purchasing power tomorrow that it has today, which means you get less right. for what you put in, which means you got robbed. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah, so I mean, spot on. Good, good point. Thank you. It's, I think it's also important uh, for us to be able to widely utilize what's put before us. We must predominantly put all of our trust in the promises of God, who has in all of eternity, all of human history, never let us down. Right. Not one time. Not once. Not one time did he make an error and fail to 
calculate for something, and now he's got to borrow money to make good on his promises for you. Right. It did not happen. On top of that, the Bible actually has a lot to say about money and how to manage it. It does. You know, like we say all the time, the Bible is wholly adequate and has anticipated all of these issues. Jason, you were saying earlier, the borrower is the slave to the lender. Yep. So it's difficult to see that in some cases, but I mean, look at a nation, look at monetary policy and everything we've laid out today. Yeah, it's definitely a, a, a uh, what do I want to say? A uh, monetary slavery, for sure. What do we call <clears throat> that at the beginning? Generational monetary enslavement? Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Okay, my bad. I could have helped you with that earlier. No, it's all right. <clears throat> so if we could encourage you to do anything, and not that we're giving financial advice, but getting out of debt is biblical financial advice. Mm-hmm. Because you're not supposed to be a slave to anyone, but voluntarily a slave to Jesus Christ. Right. So <clears throat> I've not gone through Dave Ramsey's stuff before, but I do have a lot of friends who have used uh, Dave Ramsey's Dave Ramsey's material. Uh, he has, it's called Financial Peace. It's a program to help Christians, well, really anybody, to help anyone manage their finances and get out of debt um, and, and function with the biblical mandate over their finances. Um, so I highly recommend that. If you're interested in being less dependent on the system, I think Dave Ramsey's would be a good way to go. And if you don't need him, if you know how to implement a system and get out of debt and stop giving in to, to this uh, system of enslavement, then yeah, by all means, should do that. I would agree with that. Uh, uh, my recommendation would be, first and foremost, begin to put psychological and spiritual mechanisms in place to guard your heart so that you don't succumb to the love of money or the God of mammon. That's good. Because there's a constant, constant employ that you can have the perfect life and obtain a utopian existence if you just had something that requires a little more money. Mm-hmm. In fact, one guy was asked, hey, how do you know when you have enough money? Like, what's enough? And his answer was classic. More than what I got right now. Which means you never have enough. Right. Always a little more. Just a little bit. Just not a even much. Our, our country is built on that idea. Our society thrives on it. Mm-hmm. And there has to be an intentional turning around of that. The second thing would be to realize that God, for the Christian, is a is a is the source, not a, but is the source and sustaining power of that person's life, not the Federal Reserve System or its legal tender. Yeah, that's a hard one to really swallow because conceptually, I can ask God, you know, hey, can you help feed me? I'm hungry. Might send some ravens, <laughs> you know, or I can go take a few dollars right. and go down the street and feed myself. It would make it seem like money is a faster and more sure solution to my problems than trusting God. I get that. I have fought through, continue to fight, and sometimes get my behind whooped by that idea. Mm -hmm. Um, But overnight, this thing that we have grown to become so accustomed to, this money in our pocket, can vanish. Yep. Now, y'all don't think it's it's possible. You're like, I mean, what's going to happen? 2008 our financial system was supposed to collapse. Now, I can hear the skeptic out there too. And he's going, but it didn't. So what are you saying? Okay, cool. The reason it did not collapse is because they printed money to artificially sustain it. They went further into debt and gave further assets signed over to 
the Rothschild International banking cartel in order to offset the debt that they took. Yep. Right now, our debt under the, there's a program that you, there's a website you can go to and there's an app that's tied to the website that you can get, which is called U.S. Debt. It's our debt clock. And our debt right now is astronomically alarming. We are sitting at $30 trillion, $406 billion, $135 million, 600, 700, 800, 900. It's, it's going. Jeez. And isn't 80% of that was printed in the last two years, right? That's so, Yeah, that's what I've heard. That's crazy. Just what's printed up. The estimations for where we should be in the future is worse than that. $30 trillion mm-hmm. in our debt system. Yeah. That's an unsustainable system. Right. Now, all of us are probably saying we've never seen a collapse, so we can't really relate to it. This this thing in our pocket, this this currency that's in our, our bank accounts, the credit that our credit cards and digital currency are based on, it allows us to buy things, and we can't really relate to this notion of it wouldn't be there. But when I just told you there's $30 trillion of debt and put it to you in the terms of if you were to pay off $1 trillion, a dollar a second, it would take you 32,000 years to pay off a trillion. We're in thirty trillion. Yeah, you cannot pay that back. Right. We have passed the point of no return. Our system is going to collapse. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. Now the hope would be as soon as you hear that, well, hopefully it doesn't happen in my lifetime. So what are you saying that you hope that the, your kids and your grandkids <laughs> experience that? I don't want to experience a collapse. Right. I don't know when it's coming, but we would be foolish not to prepare for it. I would agree. We'd be foolish not to take practical steps. So it takes me to my third one. Um, we really have to look at practical steps that will allow for us to sustain life outside of the system. Mm-hmm. Because once it collapses, it will probably be, this is my guess, it will probably be reinstituted in a different fashion because it's going to be part of the new world order. The old order has to collapse in order for the new order to come about. Right. So everything with the old order order has to go away as well. And the old order, our current order is backed by U.S. dollars, which are backed by petroleum. Right. Because the energy, the energy that the world relies on is traded in U.S. dollars. Once the U.S. economy is crashed and the dollar, which is already worthless, is completely killed. That will represent the cessation of the current world order. There will have to be a new currency that's created. So hence why you are seeing right now the back and forth battle with Bitcoin and other digital currency. The U.S. government is already working to do the digital dollar. That's what they want to do because it's part of the central banking system. But if you think I'm crazy right now, while Will Smith was slapping the bejesus out of Chris Rock for, for some unknown reason. While that was happening and that was all we could talk about, the World Economic Forum was meeting and they were discussing is right now the time to bring about the new world order. Y'all didn't hear about this. Right. 30,000 people got together, movers and shakers from all over the world, got together and was deciding. They said it right out, flat out. Is this the time to institute the new world order? And the title of this session, are we ready for a new world order. That is the purpose of this discussion today, so let's get on with it. Is the US-led 
multilateral system created post-World War II to manage international relations so that the world would never again see and experience the same chaos and disorder of a world war. Is it anything like fit for purpose? And if not, what is the alternative? One of their panelists actually said that we, and I'm paraphrasing, you can't do this without the implementation of a digital currency. And so digital currency is fundamental to us bringing this new world order in. And we're going to have to make some decisions. I did not, I didn't know any of this. Well, you know, when I'm out there <laughs> on the road at 4 30 mm. in the mornings, out That's there doing crazy. some studying. But yeah, the, it, it's, it's scary. But like you said, Christopher, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of love, peace, and sound mind. Yep. Particularly the sound mind part that I'm focusing on. Love cast out perfect fear, but we shouldn't be worried. We have to look for spiritually smart, spiritually wise, practically smart solutions. And it's going to mean doing things different than what we've come accustomed to. Yes. What I have found is that there are a lot of natural solutions to things that we're just not used to. There are natural energy solutions that are either outlawed to keep people bound to the system or just suppressed so people don't know about it as an option. Right. You have to start thinking about those things. You have to think about how you provide food. Will you work in the, in the form of the system or will you be trying to provide your own food? Right. We talked about this in another episode. There are laws that prevent people from growing their own food. Not because it's quote unquote immoral. It is illegal, but not necessarily immoral. Right. But it keeps people tied to the food industry. Mm -hmm. And if they control that industry, if they control what you work, if they control how much you make, if they control your digital currency and maybe fine you for things that you're not doing, like maintaining six foot of separation or maybe not wearing your mask as you're supposed to, <laughs> we got to fine you for that. And yep. oh, you know what? Mm -hmm. I tell you what, since you seem to be a dissenter, the price of a chicken leg is more for you than it is for the other person. Yep. Suddenly, your time, your hourly pay, your salary, it's not worth as much as what you're used to. And if you don't, if you haven't started thinking honestly about these things, if you haven't started thinking or started thinking about, I need to change how I think. If you still are caught in the idea of get, 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 chase the Joneses, take your, take your, uh, your tax refund, spend it on something else that you can get to reinvest your money back into the system so that you can have a little bit of pleasure, you know, go out, buy you a nice sound system. Hey, maybe go buy you a wonderful car. Oh, go get you some new clothes. All of that funnels the money back into this very system. Yep. If you're not thinking, Hey, I need to take those resources and start doing things to prepare for a future that's unstable, then you're still caught in the thought prison that this Babylonian money magic creates for you. Right. There has to be a change. That's what we're talking about. Develop that strong mental aptitude. You have to emotionally come to terms with the world as I know it may not exist. And it could change overnight. That 2008 housing market bubble collapse was only averted on a weekend. Started on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they're scrambling, trying to hammer out these deals so that by Monday morning, the, the market's open. And it wasn't crashed. Had they not did the unscrupulously stupid thing that they did, <laughs> we would be in a collapse right now. So now it's just pushed off for a little bit and we don't know when that's coming, but I'm telling you, it is coming. Right. You're seeing food shortages right now. We're yep. experiencing that. It's not the supply chain thing. That's the cover. Yep. It is slowly getting people used to 
famine and food shortage because people will comply when they're hungry. Yeah. It was Stalin that said, I believe this guy interviewed Stalin. Uh, he bought this, this chicken over. He's talking to him about um, controlling people. He bought this chicken over. He grabbed this chicken and he plucked out feather by feather this every feather on this chicken's body, uh-huh. which is extremely painful for the chicken. Right. Put the chicken down. It's shaking it all over. Takes a piece of bread, walks over to the other side of the room, holds the bread out, and this chicken that had just been mutilated and tortured by Stalin, uh-huh. comes over and takes the bread out of Stalin's hand. And he said, that's how you control people. I can torture you and mutilate you, but as long as I feed you, you'll come back to me and you'll comply. That's crazy. That's how wicked this system is, but it's also how it works. Right. So we have to start rethinking. We have to start pulling together. You know, we're part of this whole American dream illusion that if I have and, and I've got, I'm okay. So I don't want to necessarily pull together with my neighbor. I don't want to work with my brother. Mm-hmm. I want to have my own house, my own spot, my own land, my own resources. And it's coming to a point you probably won't be able to do that. Right. You have to start thinking different. Start thinking about pulling resources together. Yep. Start thinking about economic choices and decisions that we make now we don't take much thought in. Start investing in non-perishable goods. Mm-hmm. Start getting you bags of rice. Start getting you bottles of water. Start start getting the, the stuff to put them in. The stuff's not super expensive. Right. Get glass jugs. Yep. Start looking at investing in ways that you can trap mm-hmm. natural energy. These are some of the things I recommend. I know I kind of went off for a minute. No, it's all right. But I think this is really stuff people have to think about, honestly, and come to terms with. Right. Because even like you were saying, even if we're fortunate enough in our generation to not have to deal with it, which it doesn't look like we're going to escape this. Right. But if we are, do we really want to leave our children unprepared for what could come? Right. And they're basically going to model what they see modeled in front of them. Right. So just a little change of mind, a little change of practice, a little preparation can really make all the difference. Absolutely. Something else I think you could do is share this show. Tell your friends, tell your family before they cut off your electricity. Listen to the podcast. Yeah. I mean, we know it was a little long today, but... This is the information that they don't want people to know. Right. And if you don't want to spend the time, I don't know how many hours you spent in research. Uh, Mine was considerable. I think I was around 15 to 20 hours. Oh, for this? Yeah. I lost count. I couldn't even tell you how many hours I put into this thing. Yeah, this is ridiculous. If you don't want to spend that type of time investing in research, then take the show where the people have already done that work and share it. Right. So other people don't have to, but they get the value of the information we, we, we uncovered. Yeah, sign up on our website so we can notify you when we drop new episodes. Right, that's a good one. Because depending on what we put out there, if they take us down off Spotify, we can still contact you and let you know we've got shows up on other platforms. Right. That, that That's good, man. You know, getting the word out is definitely one of the biggest things that you can do. And like I said, we do a lot of that heavy work in, in doing the research and putting these episodes together, putting that time in. Uh, but what I, I what I want people to take away more than anything, because it's horrible if you just tell people about problems right. and you don't provide a solution. I want people to remember that we're never alone. You know, we have a community of believers all over the country and all over the world. And more importantly, we have a loving God that has promised never to forsake us. Yes. Despite he, what the song says. Absolutely. And he's not reckless. <laughs> but no, he's promised never to leave us. And famine is not 
it, it's not foreign to him. It's not unique to him. It doesn't catch him off guard. You think back to the Old Testament. Think about the warning he gave. He gave a warning to his people. There's a famine coming. There's a solution for it. Here's the solution. Yep. That's something really, I think, to take to heart. Um, because this this allows us to stand in the gap and both assist those who are being damaged by this this matrix, this system. It helps prevent others from falling into this trap. And this is a trap that was designed in ancient times to honor the primeval god Mammon. And it did this by casting a broad public spell on the masses that would eventually trap them in their debt, forcing them to exchange their worship for the system in order to provide food, shelter, and clothing for themselves and their family. Here's the thing. Every day we are given another opportunity to reclaim our minds from the oppressive mind control matrix we are subjected to on a 24-hour basis. But how? Simple. By renewing our minds, literally rewiring our brains with scripture so that we can think more like Christ and less like Satan. Which means we cannot forget that we live in a complex matrix of deception. That's a satanically inspired, demonically engineered prison for our minds. And we have to understand that it's been designed with stealth technology. That means it operates right in front of us with minimal detection. In fact, it's almost impossible to detect it using human technology, which is why you need spiritual technology. And that's exactly where scripture comes in. The reason this matrix wants to operate undetected is so we don't resist in its influence, the influence that's putting on us to do its dirty work by contributing our life energies to help establish this new world order of oppression. This system, the new world order, is being erected by men and women that are committed to their cause, a cause that dates back to the ancient Luciferian snake-worshipping Canaanite order, an order that lusts for total world domination. And the walls of this matrix are the social control mechanisms used to guide humanity to that aim. Between those walls, deep in the coffers of world treasuries, sits our financiers, you know, the bankers. People, some of whom are just going about their daily lives, approving loans, issuing credit, and genuinely trying to keep life moving ahead on schedule. While others have single-handedly crafted much of the world around us and intentionally funded efforts necessary for constructing this new world order of oppression. But now, right now is the time for us to actually begin to fight back. We have neither the time nor the inclination to be overly concerned anymore with the feelings of a world that rises and sleeps under the very blanket of free will that our God provides and then questions his goodness and wisdom in providing it. Which raises an important issue here, Christopher. Who is going to challenge these gatekeepers? Is it going to be the Muslim? Nope. What about the Jew? Probably not. Perhaps the Hindu? Um, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. Maybe it'll be the atheist or even the skeptic. Negative, Ghost Rider. <sighs> well, if it won't be any of them, then will it be the serious follower of Christ? You know, the one who's supposed to stand flat-footed and unwaveringly speak truth to power using the unadulterated, eternal, and unapologetic word of God Almighty? It daggone better be. We, and that's those of us who confess allegiance to Yahweh, those of us who recognize the eternally despondent position that our sin and our guilt have placed us in before a holy God, those of us who in turn recognize our need and accept the eternal savior, not just any savior, Yahweh's savior, Yahweh's Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. That we represents the last bastion of hope that this world has. Why? 
because we are the church and consequently we're the only institution that has both the biblical mandate and social responsibility to act. There's a reason why scripture calls us salt and light. We are supposed to help stop the moral decay of society while simultaneously bringing in the intellectual and spiritual genius of Christ so that it replaces the false brilliance of Luciferian enlightenment. But make no mistake, light will dispel darkness. That's a fact written into the laws of physics. But it will also attract attention. And that's a fact woven into the experience of creation. We have to be okay with that. That's why 365 times scripture repeats the phrase, don't be afraid. But friends, listen, we get it. We're not sitting here in an ivory tower protected from any of these woes that we're talking about. We have to fight through getting out of debt. We have credit cards that we're trying to get off of our neck. We're trying to, quote unquote, get ahead in this world. We understand that these topics, Babylonian money magic and worldwide uh, witchcraft and spells being enacted on the public. Yo, that's just one of many of the topics that we talk about here. And some of that stuff is really unnerving. You know, we go to the fringe of Christianity and we deal with topics that most churches today, unfortunately, they're just not willing to touch. Not even with a six foot cross because those topics are too controversial. They're politically incorrect. They're scary. And you know what? They should be because much of what we reveal on this show is about the hidden machinations of evil. Now, you got to understand this evil is crafty. See, it anticipates your apathy. It anticipates your busyness, your laziness, your fear of confronting others and a tendency to want to avoid conflict. It manufactures feelings of inadequacy so that you'll avoid the life-giving and necessary time of spending real quality time with our Heavenly Father. It hopes that you'll not only shy away, but you'll completely avoid any situation that asks you to do just one thing, asks you just to speak up. Why? so that it can remain hidden and unchecked. That's what we meant by operates by stealth. But here's the fact. We must present the truth. We got to do that at all times and at all costs. See, guys, the reality is truth isn't just a collection of facts. It's not just an academic concept. It's a personal one, and it culminates in the personhood of Jesus Christ. He is the one on which all hope hangs. There is no way you or I could defeat an archangel. Which is exactly why Jesus has promised to come back and deal with Satan in the most violent of ways. See, Jesus will fulfill his messianic mandate. He's going to restore creation back to its intended splendor. How? By reorienting everything again towards the Father. See, he's going to bring the created order into proper relational harmony by bringing everything back into complete alignment with the Father's will. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the true definition of a utopia. But until then, we have to remember, just like they said in that quote from, from Avatar, you're not in Kansas anymore. You're deployed to this dystopian rock by our savior in chief, the very one that's commissioned us on a seesaw. That's right. We're on a combat search and rescue mission, people. And be advised, the hostages we're after are likely to be hostile towards us, but we still gotta go get them. Now our task and order is simple. We're to search for and rescue anyone that can be sympathetic to Christ, but is currently held hostage under Satan's deception. And make no mistake, we will be operating in a hostile environment, 
But the rules of engagement are clear. Listen to me. You take fire, you get fire. And I need you to keep your head on a swivel out there. Stay frosty, stay faithful, and above all, you stay in the fight. That means do not give up, because we're counting on you. You ain't alone out there. We're fighting right next to you, and we'll see you out there again, fighting on the very front line. 10-4.